Chapter 2. Qualifying your way to sales success. Welcome to the most important chapter of this book and the most critical stage of the sales process. If you master the art of questioning and qualifying your sales prospects, it will go a long way to making you an elite sales professional. Too many salespeople make the mistake of rushing through this stage. They judge the quality of their opportunities based on the great rapport they build with the prospect or based on how excited their prospect sounded in the first conversation. Don't fool yourself like many salespeople do. The qualification stage of the sales process is the most comprehensive. You must engage your prospect in a conversation, uncover their basic needs, ensure they are the right person to speak with, ask about budgets and timelines and dig deeper into buying motives to discover the real drivers behind your contacts decisions and much more. If you fail to qualify your prospects thoroughly, the consequences are severe. You'll waste time with weak prospects, be unable to forecast accurately, and miss vital information that will cause you to lose good opportunities. The worst part of inadequate qualification is that it can lead to poor performance and you'll waste a lot of time trying to fix it by focusing on the wrong areas. Whenever a salesperson requests a coaching session with me to talk about closing, it almost always ends up in a discussion about how to qualify better and get more control over their opportunities. In my days as a sales leader, I once evaluated a list of almost 200 lost opportunities from my team. I wanted to generate a drop-down list with the most common reasons why we lost opportunities. The top five reasons were as follows. Number one, poorly qualified, 62%. Number two, no slash low budget, 18%. Number three, unknown slash no reply, 9%. Number four, lost to competitor, 6%. Number five, project postponed, 5%. I firmly believe that poor qualification is still the biggest problem in the sales profession today, and it's an expensive one. In this chapter, I will go in depth on how to pique your prospect's interest and begin qualifying instantly. I will introduce you to some old and new questioning techniques, focusing not only on how to use them, but also when to use them for best effect. I'll also dig into important topics such as how to spot buying signals, how to reveal real buyer motives, and how to uncover decision processes, timelines, stakeholders, and much, much more. By the end of this chapter, you'll have the techniques and strategies needed to create robust sales pipelines that will result in a predictable source of revenue and a feeling of complete control. So let's get started. Features, Benefits and Outcomes, FBO. When I started as an untrained salesperson back in the late 90s, the best way to sell was to reel off the long list of features included in your solution. This approach worked pretty well until the global financial crisis of 2008. Said to be the worst since the Great Depression of the 1930s, this crisis fundamentally changed the way companies made purchasing decisions, and it also changed the sales profession forever. 
an impressive list of features was no longer enough to win the deal. The quick and easy sale became like an urban myth, and pushy sales tactics were no longer as effective. Luckily for me, I had been training myself not to use a list of features to sell my solution long before the financial crisis of 2008 happened. In fact, I can honestly say that during the entire crisis, I made the most money of my sales career to date. I was working for a leading supplier of digital publishing software at the time. Our solution was impressive, but it required an investment of a minimum of £2,500 in a market where smaller players were offering the same solutions for £99. The only way to compete and prove your worth against low-quality competition is to sell value. You must focus on what value your clients will get from investing in your solution. You must move away from selling features and benefits and start selling benefits and outcomes. To make this shift, you need to start with a basic understanding of what features, benefits and outcomes are. So let's look at what I refer to as FBO. F, a feature. A feature is what something is, such as a software or one of its different elements. Your nose, for example, is also a feature of your face. B, a benefit. A benefit is what something does, such as a software that converts PDFs into digital magazines, or your nose that allows you to smell things. O, an outcome. An outcome is what happens as a result of the benefit. So converting PDFs into digital magazines might increase your readership. And by smelling smoke from a fire, your nose could save your life. An outcome is essentially the value your solution offers, which is what you should be talking to your prospects about. Many salespeople struggle to kick the habit of talking about features and often get benefits and outcomes mixed up. An average car salesperson would typically sell me the idea of a brand new supercar by saying it has an impressive amount of horsepower with a top speed of something ridiculous that enables it to travel from 0 to 60 in 3.3 seconds. That salesperson would be quickly stumped if I asked why they were telling me this. Selling benefits may be enough to get you in the door. But if you or your contact need to sell your idea to a senior executive, you're going to need to talk about the value they will get. Ideally, you'll talk to your prospects about the ultimate outcomes of investing in your solution, but I'll get to that later on the section on buyer motives. I highly recommend you put some time aside to work on listing your features, benefits and outcomes. It's likely you've developed a habit of selling features and benefits, and habits, as I've mentioned before, are difficult to break. Consider creating a spreadsheet with three parallel columns across the top, titled Features, Benefits, and Outcomes, and begin with listing all of your features. You'll then need to write down the benefit of each feature, before finally writing down the outcomes. This exercise will help raise your awareness of the differences between benefits and outcomes, but will do little to break your old habit. To break any habit, you must replace it with a new one. To create a new habit, you need to practice and rehearse using something like roleplay activities, and then apply the new habit in a live environment with your prospects.
Almost every salesperson I've met sells using features and benefits. So the faster you can break this habit, the sooner you can start selling value and closing more sales. Open the call and interrupt the pattern. Reaching your desired contact person can be a rare occurrence in a regular sales day. In my experience, you'll connect on average with two contacts out of every 10 attempts. Most salespeople are unprepared for the rare occasion they reach a contact. They stutter, panic, and dribble out whatever blurb comes to mind, killing the call before it has begun. A call usually starts with a courteous greeting and introduction, such as, Good morning, my name is Sarah from the company Big Ideas Limited. It's at this point, in 9 out of every 10 cold calls, that salespeople act like salespeople. You might feel the need to say something cliche like, how are you doing today? Or even worse, to start pitching, which is precisely what your prospect will be expecting you to do. At the beginning of every cold call, there's always a wall of resistance that exists between the buyer and seller. You'll need to break this wall down before you can engage your prospect in a valuable conversation. When you reach a prospect for the first time and they realize you're a salesperson, they may not say it out loud, but they're certainly always thinking, ugh, another sales call. They then immediately go into what is known as a pattern of thought about how to get off the call. A quick online search for how to get rid of sales calls delivers more than 48 million results, indicating how common this pattern of thought is amongst your prospects. You're going to need to break this pattern of thought to avoid your next words falling on deaf ears, and you can do so using something called a pattern interrupt. I learned about this technique when training as a Neuro Linguistics Programming NLP practitioner, where it's used to help change a person's negative state. I'm positive you've been in a situation where you forgot what you were doing or saying for a moment because someone or something interrupted you. For example, if someone banged on the door or dropped and smashed a glass behind you right now, you'd most likely lose track of where you were in this book, leaving your brain momentarily free to focus on something else. Pattern interrupts don't need to be complicated, and you can get as creative or not as you like. Below, you'll find six examples for pattern interrupts you can integrate into the beginning of your cold calls to break your prospect's negative state of mind. Number one, mention something familiar. Mention a familiar name, like the person who gave your contact details or the name of someone you know who works at their company. Number two, mention something company specific. Refer to a recent blog post, newspaper article, or something else related to your prospect's business. Number three, mention something personal. Refer to something from your contact's LinkedIn profile, such as past jobs, shared contacts, relevant job responsibilities, or a great article they posted recently. Number four, say something funny. Say something like, I know what you're thinking right now. Oh, another annoying sales call. But if you just give me 30 seconds, I'll give you a reason to think otherwise. Number five, do something strange. Open your call with your greeting and then add a moment of silence before asking if your prospect can hear you okay. Number six, do something simple. Asking if you caught your prospect at a bad time is probably the simplest pattern interrupt you can use, especially if your prospect answers with an abrupt tone. 
Now, many prospects will immediately shift their pattern if they sense their tone has come across as rude, even if they meant it to do so. Personally, I like to use this one because it's easy to use, requires no pre-call research, and shows respect for the prospect's time. I do, however, frequently get asked and challenged on what the difference is between asking if you caught your prospect at a good time or at a bad time. And to be perfectly honest, there's not much difference. But I would ask you to consider two questions before deciding which one to use. Number one, is it ever a good time to receive a sales call? And number two, do you want your prospect to be fully focused on the call? I find there to be a slight psychological advantage to asking if it's a bad time because human nature tends to prompt us to say no. I also prefer talking to my prospects when they're not engaged in other activities. By doing this, you're leaving yourself open to the yes, it's a bad time response. This reaction may be genuine or it may be a way of your prospect trying to get rid of you. Respond with an apology for the interruption and ask when a better time may be. Your prospects will then respond in one of two ways. They will either ask what the call is regarding in a pleasant tone, in which case I refer you back to the gatekeeper technique of being as vague as possible before asking again when a better time may be, or two, they will ask what the call is regarding in a direct and maybe abrupt tone, in which case proceed with the call as if your prospect had given you permission. A direct persona type prospect will often appreciate you cutting to the chase, which will also help you build instant rapport. Where possible, always try to get a specific time for when to call someone back if the timing is wrong, and be sure to ask for the best number to reach them on directly. Your opening statement. Once you've managed to break the thought pattern of your prospect away from trying to get you off the call, you have a brief window of opportunity in which to pique their interest. Your opening statement is critical. It's your one chance to make a good first impression, so you must make it count. The objective of your opening is to state the reason for your call and to pique your prospects interest enough that they want to hear more. The shorter you can make your statement, the better. I would like to stress that this is not time for your elevator pitch. Save the pitch for the presentation stage, otherwise you'll have nothing left to present. I would also like to stress the importance of not insulting your prospect. This point may seem obvious, but it's a common mistake made by many salespeople in their attempt to pique a prospect's interest. Here's a few examples of opening statements that run the risk of insulting your prospects. The first one. The reason for my call is that I noticed the SEO on your website isn't great and wondered if you wanted some help with that. Number two, the reason for my call is that we offer a leadership program to help you do a better job of managing your employees. Number three, the reason for my call is that I noticed the search function on your website isn't working too well and we offer a much better solution. Now, all of the above statements may sound innocent to you, but when you're on the receiving end, they may seem like an insult. If I strip a few words from each statement, you'll notice a trend. The first one, the SEO on your website isn't great. Number two, help you do a better job of managing your employees. And the third one, the search function on your website isn't working too well. 
They sound like insults, because they are. Another reason not to use such an approach is that it's likely your prospect already knows about the flaw you're pointing out. And consider how it would make you feel if you were walking down the street, knowing you had a rip in your top, and some unknown person pointed it out before recommending a different, more expensive line of clothing to avoid that happening again. Would you consider buying from that person, or is it more likely you'd consider punching them in the face? An effective opening statement should always include at least one benefit and outcome of your solution, which is typically complemented by something catchy. Here, I will provide you a few examples of some solid opening statements, but as usual, I urge you to be creative with your own. Where possible, make them relevant to your verticals of your prospect. The first one, the competitor statement. The reason for the call is we've been helping competitor name reach more highly qualified candidates so they can cut recruitment costs and improve their brand reputation. In that example, I use the name of a competitor, the benefit of reaching more highly qualified candidates and the outcome of cutting recruitment costs and improving brand reputation to pique the prospect's interest. It's short, simple and effective. At the end of your opening statement, you want your prospect either to think or ask, how do you do that then? Don't worry about telling your prospect who you are or what you do at this point. Instead, tease them into wanting to hear more. The next one, the big brand statement. The reason for the call is we've been helping big brand name increase their social reach and generate more inbound leads. That example uses the name of a big brand, the benefit of increasing social reach and the outcome of more inbound leads to pique the interest of the prospect. If you're working with both small and large businesses, it's worth considering either not using a big brand name or mixing it in with a less well-known name to avoid frightening the smaller businesses away. You might say the reason for the call is we've been helping the likes of big brand name and small brand name increase their social reach and generate more inbound leads. The more you can relate to your prospect's business, the more effective your opening statement will be. The marketing trick. The reason for the call is we've been talking with big brand name about increasing their social reach and generating more inbound leads. That statement is useful if you do not work with any big brand names yet. It follows my rule that you must never lie, but bending the truth is just business. So rather than saying we've been helping big brand name, you say we've been talking to big brand name. Now, naturally, you need to have spoken to that specific big brand name first. Otherwise, it's a lie. But you can easily get a big brand on the phone for a quick chat, even if it's just with an information collector. The powerhouse statement. The reason for the call is, we've been helping the likes of competitor name and big brand name reduce their customer churn and increase their reoccurring revenue. If you really need to impress a prospect, Combining the name of a competitor and a big brand name makes a powerful statement that can prove difficult to ignore. In the event you have no competitor or big brand names to use, you can always go with a more generic approach. The generic vertical statement. The reason for the call is we've been helping companies in the specific vertical sector improve their website SEO and massively reduce their search engine marketing spend. When using that statement, your prospect will sometimes ask, which companies have you been working with? 
so I would recommend having a couple of appropriate names at hand. If you only have small names to mention, be upfront with your prospect. Tell them you've recently started out in the sector, so you don't have any recognizable names yet. The best policy is honesty. If you have no clients at all, don't worry, I've got you covered. The generic job title statement. The reason for the call is we have a solution that helps job title, like yourself, automate the process of creating new users so you can spend your time on more important tasks. So for example, you would say the reason for the call is we have a solution that helps marketing directors like yourself or IT managers like yourself. Whichever statement you choose to work with, remember to include your benefits and outcomes and make them as robust and relevant to your prospect as possible. Telling a webmaster he can increase sales will be much less effective than if you tell him he can reduce downtime. Your opening question. Picture yourself in an interrogation room with your prospect. When you begin to talk, there's a big bright spotlight shining in your face, making you sweat. The only way to get that spotlight off your face is to get your prospect talking and pointed at them. After you pique the interest of your prospect with your opening statement, you should immediately follow up with a question. The opening question is where most salespeople commit sales suicide. They ask questions such as, does that sound like interest to you? Or would you like to hear more? Or have you heard of us before? If you ask a closed question, you're giving the prospect no choice other than to answer with a yes or no. Regardless of which response your prospect chooses, the spotlight turns right back on you. You must avoid questions that start with do, does, would, could, can, or any other that gives your prospect the option to give a one-word response, especially if it's a no. They are conversation killers. You'd be surprised at how many salespeople use these closed-ended questions and complain after their calls that their prospects were stubborn because they only gave one-word answers. Your opening question should be open-ended. Questions that start with how, what, or which will help put the spotlight on your prospect and keep it there for a short while. Your opening question should also be clear, easy to answer, and not too intrusive. I recommend against starting with open-ended questions that begin with a why because despite being very powerful, they are often too abrupt to be used early in the conversation. You should also put some thinking into where you want to go with your opening question. There's little or no value in asking something that is completely irrelevant to the topic you wish to discuss. If I, for example, were to cold call a prospect about sales training, I might open by asking how they are currently training the team. This question opens the topic I wish to discuss and is the first step of qualifying if the prospect needs my services. Here, I've listed some random examples of opening questions you could consider using. Naturally, you'll need to customize these to suit your solution you offer and your own style of selling. Personally, I like to give my questions a slight mask of innocence by starting them off by saying, I was just wondering, but you can decide if that works for you. The first one, how are you currently driving traffic to your website? Next, how much focus do you have on your social media accounts? Next, how do you currently cross sell products to your customers? Next, how much time do you spend on sourcing candidates each month? Next, 
How do you train your new employees at the moment? Next, what solution do you have in place for managing support requests? Next, what payment methods do you offer? Next, what process do you have in place for handling customer complaints? And last, which CMS platform do you use? Put some time aside to write a list of your own. Think about what your solution does and what questions you could ask first to begin qualifying if your prospect has a need for what you offer. For example, if you offer a solution that helps customers improve employee morale, start by asking how much focus they have right now on improving employee morale. If you provide a solution that helps companies automate a process, start by asking how much time your prospect currently spends on that process today. The quality of your opening question will dictate how the rest of your call is going to go. If you open with a random question, the rest of your call will go in the same way. But if you start with a well-structured question, you'll have a well-structured conversation. Before you progress further, be sure to get a sanity check on your opening statement and question. Read it aloud to yourself a few times and ask a colleague, manager or friend to read it through and roleplay with you. And finally, put it to the test in a live environment. I also highly recommend you write down a few different variations for each statement and question. Print them out and keep them by your side until you're reeling them off at an unconscious level of competence. I've never met a salesperson who liked sales scripts, yet they are so fundamentally important in the learning process. Even the world's greatest actors need scripts, and using them will speed up your learning process tenfold. How to overcome phone fear. Once you've prepared, drilled, and rehearsed your opening statement and question, it's time to pick up the phone and put it into action. Cue the sound of a fast-beating heart. Whether you're new to sales or a seasoned professional, you may not know it, but it's very likely you've experienced phone fear. As the moment comes closer to when you need to pick up the phone, your heart rate begins to beat a little faster. Your bladder gets conveniently weaker and your thirst for coffee or any other activity that will help you prolong that terrifying first call becomes all too frequent. Salespeople experience phone fear when they first start in the profession, when they start new jobs and when they've not picked up the phone for a while, especially when it's to make a cold call. The experience is similar to the feeling you get when slowly climbing the track to the top of a huge roller coaster ride. Sadly, not everyone finds the drop exhilarating enough to jump on again. I can remember at least two occasions during my career where new salespeople went for their lunch breaks on their first day and didn't return. Fear will either kill you or empower you. Phone fear, like any other fear, is nothing more than adrenaline. The same adrenaline that Usain Bolt uses to make him the fastest man on the planet. And the same adrenaline that every other top athlete experiences before a race, fight or game. If you watch someone like Usain Bolt before a race, you'll see exactly how he handles the build-up of adrenaline. He relaxes his body, lifts his head high, takes deep breaths and goes into a trance of focus. It's like he holds the adrenaline back and then bang, he unleashes it at the sound of the starting pistol and there's no catching him. The faster you pick up that phone, 
dial that number and make a connection, the faster you get rid of phone fear. There's just something about making that first call which releases those butterflies a little and makes the next call much easier. If you get a gatekeeper or a rude prospect or a voicemail machine, don't stop. Keep dialing while you're in the flow. Spending 10 minutes between calls to doodle will not help you. It will only increase the tension. If you can't get past phone fear, you'll never succeed in sales. All you need is the guts to dive in and take action without the fear of failure. Just relax, lift your head high, take some deep breaths, zone in and dial. How to make a good first impression. You get only one chance to make a good first impression, so you better make sure it's a damn good one. When you interact with your prospect for the first time, their brain will process the way you look, feel, sound, and smell. Based on their past experiences, their brain will then come to a quick conclusion of what to make of you. If you're lucky, those past experiences will be positive. If you're not, you better come up with something interesting or funny within 30 seconds. In fact, the sad reality is that your prospect may have already judged you before you even picked up the phone. People have all sorts of limiting beliefs installed in their systems and these are again a result of their past experiences, many of which they've never challenged. You'll encounter prospects who claim to hate salespeople. They may have already labeled you as the scum of the earth, but this is a typical generalization due to a bad experience with another salesperson or from a story they once heard. I remember a good quote on first impressions from the British-Canadian journalist Malcolm Gladwell who says, We don't know where our first impressions come from or precisely what they mean, so we don't always appreciate their fragility. As a coach, I will always have my clients challenge their own limiting beliefs. But as a sales profession, your only line of defense is to leave your prospect with such a good first impression that they give you the benefit of the doubt. Here I will share my recommendations for improving your chances of making a good first impression every time. Number one, be on time. You would be extremely annoyed if you sold your solution to your prospects and they did not pay their invoice. Likewise, your prospects will be anything from slightly irritated to furious if they go out of their way to meet you and you fail to turn up on time. Number two, be a tone clone. You'll build instant rapport with people when you match their tone. Pay attention to the speed and depth of your prospect's tone from the get-go and go out of your way to match it as accurately as possible. It's not about the words you say, it's about the way you say them. Dress appropriately. Whether you're meeting a prospect face-to-face -face or via webcam, be conscious that the way you look has a significant impact on the first impression you give. Think of how you would react if you saw someone wearing a baseball cap on their LinkedIn profile picture. It would sadly leave an instant impression of unprofessionalism that would be hard to change. I purposely use the word appropriately because just like with your prospect's tone, you should also try to match their dress code too. You must disguise yourself as one of them as best you can. Now, obviously, you can't predict how your prospect will dress, but applying common sense will give you a better idea. Wearing a suit and tie may be ideal when meeting bank managers, but 
it may not work very well if you're trying to sell to construction workers. If you're unsure and it's an important meeting, drop the receptionist a quick call the day before you meet and ask them politely for a rough idea of the company dress code. And be sure to remember to bring or send a small token of thanks for their help afterwards. Number four, apply humor. A smile is contagious, but laughter is bonding. If you can make your prospect laugh within the first couple of minutes, it will go a long way to cementing a blossoming relationship. I'd recommend against randomly sharing jokes and instead stick to making witty comments. Most people appreciate a dry sense of humor more than they do a joking clown. Number five, use manners. I strongly detest and would never consider buying from a person without a basic level of manners. Using please and thank you will cost you nothing. Not using them will cost you the sale. Number six, shut up. Most people hate the sound of their own voice when you ask them to listen back to it, and yet so many of them drown out their prospects' openness to talk with their babbling insecurity. Open the call, deliver your short opening statement followed by an open question, grab your pen and shut up and listen. The less you talk, the more rapport you'll build and the more you'll learn about your prospect. Micro-pitching. When it comes to breaking bad habits, there's not many more tougher to break than micro-pitching. Micro-pitching is the habit of pitching your solution at multiple points during a conversation. It usually starts with you asking a question, which your prospect answers. You then match one of your features or benefits to that answer and tell your prospect all about it. A live example I heard a while back started by the salesperson asking, what do you do to drive traffic to your website at the moment? The prospect responded by saying, we mainly spend money on search engine advertising. The salesperson then responded with, great, the reason I asked is that we have a licensing agreement with da la 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 which enables you to get star ratings and increase your CTR by up to 17%, blah, 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 blah. Prospect responded by saying, oh, right, interesting. The conversation continued with the same flow and the prospect requested an email with some more information before escaping from the call. It's common that some salespeople use the same approach when handling objections too ultimately leaving them unresolved. Some people micro-pitch because they've been poorly trained, whereas others do it because they're not comfortable asking questions. The urge to micro-pitch often comes from a healthy passion for your solution. The excitement to tell your prospects how you can help solve their pains or achieve their goals proves hard to resist. Now, the last thing I want to do is kill your passion, but I do want to persuade you to use it when the time is right. Micro-pitching is a killer. It kills conversations and it kills presentations. Your prospects want to feel like they're in a dialogue with a professional consultant who cares about their business and wants to understand and help with their challenges. When you micro-pitch, it not only becomes increasingly tedious for your prospect to listen to, but you begin to sound like a stereotypical salesperson from the 60s. Not good. Instead, I want you to picture being a soldier at war trying to get to the front line with a limited amount of ammunition. The front line is your presentation stage 
and the ammunition is the content of your presentation. If you start firing too early, you're not going to be of much use on the front line if you've used all of your ammunition, right? The faster you understand that the best method of selling is by not selling, the more successful you'll become in the sales profession. Ask questions with the purpose of collecting the valuable information you're going to use to deliver your compelling presentation when the time is right. You'll only be able to break the habit of micro-pitching again if you replace it with a new one. And I highly recommend pinning a very visual sticky note or poster in your office of something to remind you to shut up and save the pitch for the presentation. It will make you much more efficient on the front line. How to deal with not interested. The time is going to come when either the gatekeeper or your contact will tell you to stop calling or take them off your list. You could, of course, apply the boiler room approach and say, no problem, I'll take you off my list of people I made rich today. But that's not going to achieve anything apart from a few laughs in the office. A request to stop calling someone is not a real objection as such, but you should handle it in the same way. You should always try to discover what the real objection is for someone telling you they're not interested. This feedback can be critical in helping your company identify the best marketing sources, resulting in better quality leads for you. You'll hear the line, we're not interested, from both gatekeepers and your contact person. Unless you're 100% confident the gatekeeper is passing the message directly from your contact, challenge it. The gatekeeper is not hired to make business decisions. Their roles are usually to handle calls, relay messages, welcome visitors, assist callers with questions, and perform other general administrative tasks. Naturally, stating these facts will not help your cause, but being polite will usually come as a pleasant surprise to most gatekeepers, as they often spend their days getting abused by cold callers. You should make the gatekeeper think the call is about to end before calmly and innocently asking, before I go, could I please ask, why exactly is it that you're not interested? On most occasions, the gatekeeper has used the not interested blow-off as a strategy to get rid of you and will not have an answer, which may result in them becoming a little snooty and refusing to give a reply. This response enrages many salespeople and they'll try to get revenge using all sorts of childish tactics. In my younger days, I once ordered a skip to be delivered to the front parking spot of a company in the name of the gatekeeper. I also had a colleague who once did the same, only with a large batch of pizzas, on a frequent occasion. Now, as amusing as these pranks were, I know today that they were foolish and immature. I learnt my lesson when I made the stupid mistake of calling the gatekeeper the day after the skip stunt to ask if she had received it okay. She tracked back the call and our managing director was on the sales floor within the hour. He didn't seek out the responsible person as he knew our team spirit was better than to snitch on each other, but he did deliver a quote I have remembered ever since. It takes years to build a good reputation, but it takes one stupid mistake for someone to destroy it. In today's social world, there's no room for such foolish mistakes. Social media platforms can destroy your reputation within the hour. 
Getting into a fight with or getting revenge on a gatekeeper is nothing but wasted energy. Like you, the gatekeeper is just doing their job and trying to protect the company's employees from being bombarded with sales calls. Your time will be much better spent trying to find a direct route to your contact. If your contact person is the one hitting you directly with the not interested response, your strategy for what to do next will depend on the scenario. If the blow-off comes during your first dialogue and before you've even had the chance to explain why you're calling, consider throwing them off a little by a little reverse psychology. Ask them if you did something wrong. If this fails, try a confident response such as telling them if they give you two minutes, you'll change their mind. If you know for sure you're speaking with the wrong person, politely thank them for the time, get off the phone and do a little digging for a more senior contact person. Never take no for an answer unless you're dealing with the right person. You may also reach your preferred contact and receive the not interested response even after you've explained why you're calling. Take the knockback calmly and continue to ask your first couple of qualifying questions to try and uncover what they have now. The answers may give you a better sense of why they are rejecting your approach. If you're getting hit by not interested responses on a frequent basis, it could have something to do with the industry you work in or the quality of your call opening. Some industries can be tough. I started off my business to business sales career trying to sell mobile phone contracts and constant rejection was just part of my day. It's such a competitive space where companies are always fighting each other for business. It meant I was always just another cold caller. The second I mentioned anything to do with mobile phones, the answer was no. The best thing you can do is stay calm and be unlike other cold callers. If you can stand out, you'll get more opportunities to speak with people than your competition, but it takes patience. There's plenty of other scenarios where you'll get rejected by your prospects and each one will have its own reason. The more aware you become of those reasons, the better you'll become at handling them. So consider taking some time to write down all of the potential reasons why a prospect will reject you and then strategize how you could handle each different reason to get the best out of the situation. Here are some common scenarios why your prospects may have decided they are not interested before even speaking to you. They have recently signed with another supplier. They have looked at pricing on your website. They have heard bad things about your company. They have no need for your solution. They've used all of their budget. They have no authority. They have no time. Or they've had a bad morning. Some of these reasons you can work with, but others you can do nothing about. The worst thing you can do as a sales professional is to chase dead wood. I've also noticed that time is a brilliant healer in sales. You can call a prospect one day and get an abusive rejection, but if you call back a few weeks later, you can close a deal. If you learn to have empathy for your prospect situations and do not take their rejections personally, sales will become easier. Handling requests for information. Could you please put that in writing for me? 
Gatekeepers, information collectors, and even your primary contacts will often request further information to be sent via email. This request is mistakenly seen by many salespeople as a sign of interest or even a major buying signal. In fact, a request for further information is the most widely used, friendly way for a prospect to avoid having to tell you they're not interested. Some prospects will agree to almost anything to get rid of you. They'll even agree to have a follow-up call or face-to-face -face meeting despite having no intention of turning up. I've met countless amounts of salespeople who were brilliant at sending out high volumes of information emails, booking lots of meetings, and creating impressive pipelines. But I've never once seen this remarkable prospecting turn into equally impressive results. You must treat every request for information with caution. The most common response I hear to requests for information is when the salesperson says, sure, what would you like me to send you? I've never really understood the objective of this response, and I've also never seen it really work. The most effective way to handle a request for information is to accept it and carry on with the conversation. You should say, of course, I can send you the information via email. What solution is it that you currently have in place for security or whatever you're talking about? You should aim to get your most fundamental qualifying questions answered every time. At least this tells you if it's worth spending time sending out that further information. As usual, it's important you have your ears tuned into your prospect's tone because it's common to be hit with a request for information when you catch someone at a bad time. Don't be afraid to say something such as, Jenny, I sense that I caught you at an inconvenient time. Would you prefer that I give you a call later this afternoon or tomorrow morning? Now, there are, of course, some scenarios where a request for information is valid. For example, if you sell products or services that are incredibly complex, visual or technical, then a request for information may make sense. In this case, it may be a good idea to consider sending the information in advance of your call. On the other hand, if you get a request on the back of a conversation or presentation about your solution, it may be a smokescreen. The best strategy here would be to follow the objection handling process that I give you later in the book. You'll never be able to avoid sending emails. So my recommendation is to avoid sending a barrage of information that confuses your prospect. If your website, product brochure or video provides a simple and understandable explanation of your solution, just send them a link. Otherwise, send them a simple email template with your opening statement. It might sound like this. Dear first name, thank you for taking the time to talk to me today. As mentioned, we've been helping big brand name improve organic traffic and increase online sales revenues. And I wanted to discover if this was something we could help you with too. Our website or product brochures are complex, so it's best we have a brief chat first to see if you even have a need before we spend any further time on it. Let me know the best time and number to reach you and I will send across a calendar invite. Thanks again. The most important rule to remember when sending out information emails is that you will get very few people calling you back. You must always remain in control of the sales process by setting concrete next steps with your prospects and executing on your follow-up calls. How to handle stubborn prospects. 
Regardless of how good you get at building rapport, you're always going to come across prospects you just don't hit it off with. You know the type. The ones who answer your open-ended questions with one-word answers or the ones who don't even pretend to find your bad jokes funny. You just know within seconds of the conversation that it's not going to end well. Most salespeople crumble when they meet such prospects. They keep asking questions, getting the same one-word answers, and exiting the conversation at the first given opportunity. So how should you deal with these prospects? Are there really humans on the planet that are this rude and miserable? There could be several reasons why a prospect comes across as stubborn or rude when you call them. Every prospect is a unique individual, with their own beliefs, personalities, and experiences. You could call someone who has a belief that all salespeople are the scum of the earth. You could reach someone who's having a terrible morning, or you could be the sixth sales call they've received today. You simply don't know. I remember a scenario once when I came across one of these stubborn prospects. I was trying my best to keep the conversation going, but in the end, he was just so abrupt that I just came straight out and asked if I had said or done anything wrong. It turned out that he had tried contacting us three weeks earlier, but nobody had gotten back to him. So he ended up buying from a competitor. This poor service had obviously annoyed him. He no longer needed our solution, but rather than just telling me, he let the conversation drag on to avoid conflict. In the end, I apologized for the poor service and we had a pleasant conversation. It didn't take much effort and that hopefully changed the prospect's perception of our company. If you feel like you have come across a stubborn prospect, start by asking if you caught them at a bad time. It not only shows respect, but should also maybe break them out of that negative state. If not, I recommend doing as I did and ask if you have said or done anything wrong. Directness can often be your quickest route to the truth. Prospects can also be stubborn if they don't have the budget. They may get nasty and rude because they don't want to admit they can't afford your solution. And these prospects will also potentially talk negatively about your solution to avoid telling you the truth. There is no single magical ingredient to dealing with stubborn prospects, but there are a few tactics you can use to make it easier. Number one, change the day. Calling your prospect on another day will provide you with a better indication of whether they always come across as stubborn or if you just caught them on a bad day the first time. Number two, change the gender. I've often seen remarkable success with having a team member of the opposite gender to the previous salesperson called the same prospect. Number three, change yourself. If you're making assumptions that your prospects are rude just because they sound a little abrupt, then your beliefs and experiences may be limiting your performance. You must teach yourself to work with facts rather than your gut instinct all the time. In my experience, a stubborn sounding prospect can always be won over if you have good people skills and give them a chance. The more adaptive you are to your prospects, the more success you'll have as a people person and you may then be surprised at how many of those stubborn rude prospects turn out to be really nice people. How to build trust and rapport. A quote from an old English hymn writer named Isaac Watts 
says that learning to trust is one of life's most difficult tasks. It's quite true, isn't it? The majority of life's most painful stories always seem to involve someone being hurt by someone they trusted. People get married, and yet so often, people cheat and destroy the ultimate bond of trust a human can make. Business partners grow companies together, only for one to get greedy and try to steal from the other, and destroy a long-lasting friendship. Even your friends and family can undo a lifetime of trust in a single moment of selfishness or anger. Trust is fragile. It's very much like your reputation. It takes a lot of time and effort to build, but you can destroy it in one simple act. Therefore, it's so important that you master the skill of building trust with your prospects, but you must be genuine. If you try building trust using tactics alone, your prospects may not see or hear it, but they will feel it. Remember again that every individual you interact with has limitations when it comes to their beliefs and experiences. Think about how hard it is for a prospect who has had a terrible experience with a salesperson to trust another one. When it comes to building trust, the most common mistake I see salespeople make is when they spend the first five minutes of a call trying to find some common ground and then spend the rest of the call talking too much and continuously trying to build that rapport. It's okay to speak of the weather, the weekend's football or something else to break the ice at the beginning of a call. But it's nonsense to continue trying to build that rapport throughout the call using the same technique. Your prospect is not going to buy from you because you support the same football team. And they're also not going to buy from you if you chit chat too much either. You build trust and rapport with people by being genuine and by making a conscious effort to understand and care about their needs. If you're like most salespeople I know, your first error is that you talk too much. I can't begin to tell you how frustrating this is for your prospects to have to endure. It does nothing to build rapport. When you really focus on asking meaningful questions, shutting your mouth, and listening and demonstrating to your prospect that you care about their needs, the trust happens naturally. You can enhance this further by maintaining eye contact when face-to-face, -face, providing verbal yeses or okay signals when over the phone, and by repeating back and sometimes breaking down what your prospect has told you. Having a genuine respect for your prospect's time is another crucial step to gaining their trust as well. At the start of any call or meeting, thank everyone for attending before communicating how long the meeting or call will last, making sure everyone is still okay with it. If you show people respect and courtesy, it goes a long way to building trust. I listened back to some call recordings a few weeks back and heard one salesperson perfectly demonstrate what you should not do and another do the complete opposite. In the first recording, the prospect was several minutes late and the meeting was scheduled to last for 30 minutes. The salesperson was smart enough to double check their prospect could still attend for the allocated time. Luckily, the prospect confirmed they had a 10 minute gap before their next meeting. The salesperson had heard this, but had not listened because the call ended 
50 minutes later. The prospect was very engaged until she realised the call was easily going to exceed the agreed 30 minutes, after which you could literally hear her enthusiasm fade. In the second recording, from another salesperson, I witnessed almost the same scenario. The call was delayed 12 minutes due to problems getting into the online meeting software, which meant the call should last 48 minutes rather than the allocated hour, as the prospect had another meeting scheduled. The key difference this time was that the salesperson had listened. He not only checked at the beginning of the call if it was best to reschedule, but he even stopped five minutes before the time was up to ensure the prospect had a little buffer to make their next meeting. On this occasion, the prospect was so engaged that he gave permission to continue and the call lasted 20 minutes longer than originally scheduled. The most efficient way to build rapport with your prospects though is by persona matching. When you speak in the same tone as someone, you instantly begin building rapport. I would say persona matching is the best secret weapon most salespeople fail to use. You can have all of the best sales techniques in the world, but if you're a fast talker and you're dealing with a slow analytical thinker, you're instantly going to create a personality mismatch and will unconsciously just not get along with each other without knowing why. So next time you interact with a prospect, pay attention to and match their tone. Show them respect and focus on being a genuine human being with an interest in helping your prospects and the trust and rapport will happen naturally. Fear of questioning. A common trend among salespeople is the fear of asking the prospect too many questions. Most salespeople have had one or two isolated incidents where a prospect has refused to answer any questions, often wanting to know how much something costs first. I'll be straight with you here. If your prospects don't want to answer your questions, it's very likely they don't have the budget for your solution or it's because you're dealing with the wrong person. Naturally, this may not always be the case. Your prospect may stop wanting to answer your questions because your questioning skills need a little work. If you ask amateur sales questions such as what's your budget or who's the decision maker too early in a conversation, you're going to put your prospects into the defensive mode because you're being too pushy. However, the biggest reason why most salespeople don't like asking too many questions is that they don't want to come across as being rude or nosy. This is a psychologically limiting behavior that will hold you back, if not overcome. Some people are great at asking soft qualifying questions about the prospect's biggest challenges, current solutions, and what they're looking for. But when it comes to getting deeper into the real buyer motives or decision processes, they often get very uncomfortable. You must overcome this fear if you want to succeed in sales. There are only a small number of prospects who will object to the many questions you ask, most of which do not qualify anyway. If a prospect interrupts you to ask if you can just give them a price 
be confident and calmly explain that you need to ask them a few questions before discussing pricing to ensure you match them to the correct solution. If they still object, bid them a good day and move on to the next call. You'll gain much greater value from asking a lot of questions than you will by asking too few questions in an attempt to avoid annoying people. Remember that questions will help you build trust and rapport and will help you better prepare for your final presentation. Now, naturally, you should adapt this advice to your business as usual, your sales cycles and also the potential scenarios you're going to come across in your business. If you're working with longer sales cycles, you could easily spread your questions over a couple of calls. Alternatively, if you sell low-cost products, your questions will not need to be so deep. But the key thing is, don't be afraid to ask too many questions. Foolish assumptions. When you walk into a conversation with a prospect, you're sometimes armed with so much information about them, it's a little freaky. I'll admit to feeling a little like an online stalker at times when I was in sales. We often look at our prospects' social media profiles to try and learn as much as possible about them before calling. You've probably seen the classic quote from Benjamin Franklin once, who says that failure to prepare is preparing to fail. I agree that preparation is key in sales, don't get me wrong. However, I have my own saying too, and that is that too much information is, well, too much information sometimes. And I also believe that the power is not in the information, it's in how you use that information. Gathering lots of information about your prospects can not only be time consuming, but it can also affect your sales calls. What you do not notice is when you start reviewing your prospects online profiles, you start to make all kinds of subconscious judgments about them, which can often lead you to making a lot of foolish assumptions that will harm the qualifying process. I was listening to a young lady make some live cold calls about six months ago. She'd been struggling to convert her high call activity into enough meetings, but couldn't figure out why. She was struggling with gatekeepers a little because of her lack of experience in that area, but the main issue was her opening statement, which sounded a little like this. The reason for my call is that we offer an e-commerce tool and I can see the current solution on your website does not work very well, so I was wondering if you would be interested in checking out our solution. The two most foolish assumptions you can make when calling a prospect are, number one, assuming the prospect is not aware of the problem, and number two, assuming that they care about it. You could be calling someone regarding a problem they've known about for a long time. Maybe they don't have the resources to fix it, or maybe they're making so much money that they don't care. You just never know. There's nothing more irritating than someone coming along and telling you about something you already know. It will do nothing to help you convince your prospect to speak with you about your solution. I had a scenario the other week where a young salesperson was calling out to local businesses offering SEO optimized websites. He called a prospect with a similar approach, saying the prospect's website was poor in the organic search results and was also slow, 
before asking who had built the site. It turned into a very awkward conversation when the prospect said that his best friend had built it for him just a couple of weeks earlier. Making assumptions about your prospects is foolish. It limits your vision to a level that makes it almost impossible to qualify your prospects efficiently and it can kill your cold calls in a heartbeat. So rather than making foolish assumptions with the information you collect, use that information in a much smarter way. If you know a prospect has a website with poor SEO, then ask them questions to discover who did their website, how old it is, and how much they know about SEO. I would always try to structure my questions around the topic I wanted to cover and get to the point in a conversation where the prospect was admitting to me that they were unhappy with their current solution, which then gave me the perfect opportunity to come up with a better one. When you start asking questions before assuming anything, you'll notice a powerful difference in the way your sales conversations go. One question, please. Another questioning mistake to avoid is asking more than one question at a time. Now, I know this might sound like common sense, but you may do it without even knowing. It often happens when you ask a question you're uncomfortable with or if you don't get a quick response or when you're a little anxious about speaking to a specific prospect. I worked with a company a few years back and we came up with a simple questioning strategy where the sales reps would ask the following three questions as part of the qualifying strategy. The first one they would ask is, what are you doing to drive traffic to your website at the moment? The next one was, how much are you spending on that per month? And the final question was, what are you doing to convert that traffic into paying customers? Now, because some of the reps were afraid of asking the question about how much the prospect was spending, they would often package the question in together with the first one. So they would ask, I was just wondering, how are you driving traffic to your website today? Um, and, and how much roughly are you spending? When you ask more than one question at once, you'll often only get an answer to one of them, meaning you'll potentially have to ask the uncomfortable question again, or you'll just bottle it and skip it altogether. You'll also risk confusing your prospect by asking too many questions at once as well. And on top of that, you could end up skipping too far forward in the conversation and potentially missing opportunities to delve deeper into their answers. Your questions should always be asked one at a time in a slow and clear tone, and they should have a meaningful direction that is relevant to the topic you wish to discuss. Log everything. When I was a young, inexperienced and stubborn salesperson, I used to hate using CRM systems. I hated always updating records and would tell my manager that I was supposed to be a salesperson, not a data administrator. I used to think that logging activity was just a way for my manager to spy on me, making sure I wasn't slacking off. Today, my opinion on data couldn't be more different. You could say I'm a bit of a data freak. If you don't keep an accurate database of your activity, leads, prospects and customers, you're severely handicapping yourself and missing opportunities. I once started working with a new client 
and one of their new salespeople had struggled, but my client couldn't quite figure out why. When I sat down with a new employee, it turned out she used to call leads non-stop in her previous role, but in this new role, it didn't make any sense. The recommended average number of times to try and reach a prospect at this specific company was around about six to eight times, unless it was a big brand. When I asked this new salesperson how many attempts she'd made, it was more along the lines of 20 to 30. Not only was she new to this company, but she was also working on a new vertical. And it was obvious that this vertical was not going to work at this company due to the number of attempts needed to reach a contact. So this poor girl was thinking her sales ability was holding her back. Her confidence was on the floor and her job was on the line. But if she had logged all of her calls and if her manager had a better data guidelines policy in place, all of these issues could have been flagged much, much earlier and the entire situation would have ended much differently. Without logging calls, how would you know how many calls it takes to make a sale or book a meeting? Without logging details about your calls, how would you remember what was said and agreed upon in a particular call when you follow up? Without logging call attempts, such as no dialogues, left voicemail or gatekeeper screens call, how would you know when to stop wasting time on a stale lead? The answer is simple. You wouldn't. Poor data management can also make you, your colleagues and your company look unprofessional. I remember working late on a Friday some years back when I was a sales leader. It was almost 7pm when the phone started ringing behind me. Now, I'm not one who can sit there and let a phone just ring out just because it's out of office hours, so I picked up. It was an angry customer. His paid profile page had started displaying adverts like it does when you're a non-paying customer. And worst of all, the advert related to one of his competitors. I apologized, calmed him down and asked for a minute so I could review his account and find out why. I could see that his account had expired the previous day, but could see absolutely nothing else about his account. All customers were usually on an auto-renewal policy at this company, but this particular account had expired despite him wanting to renew. There were no notes or activity logs to give me any idea as to why, so I tried to reach the account management team, but everyone had left for the weekend. I ended up in the embarrassing situation of having to tell the customer that I had no clue why his account had stopped. I also did not have the privileges to amend his account either, as it was not my department, which meant his profile page would be displaying adverts for the rest of the weekend until the offices reopened on Monday. I had emailed and sent a text message to the account manager, and he did reply to me the day after to say he'd reactivated the license. He also said he'd been calling and emailing the client for weeks due to an expired credit card, but had not had any response. By simply logging those calls or tracking those emails in the CRM, I could have explained the situation to the customer and he could have updated his payment details right away. His account would also be activated and it would have avoided both me and the company looking like a bunch of unorganized amateurs. 
there's an enormous amount of value in logging data. You should be logging all calls and emails and meetings, as well as adding notes to every single activity you make. It will save you time, provide marketing with lead feedback, and give you an indication of whether things are as they should be. It is crucial. Regardless of how good you think your memory is, when it comes to qualifying hundreds of prospects, you do not have the ability to remember all of the valuable information you collect during your calls, emails and meetings. Without taking notes either during or after your calls or meetings with your prospects, you're completely defeating the purpose of qualifying them in the first place. You should think of your role in sales like that of a defense lawyer. When you get a new potential client, you do a lot of investigation by asking questions to build a case file. This case file is then what you use to mount your defense. So from the very first moment you start handling leads, it's critical to take notes and start building your case file. And don't be afraid to let your prospects know that you're doing so. It's a fantastic way of building trust because it shows you're paying attention to what they're telling you. When you take the time to remember the small but important facts your prospects share with you, it can really help you deliver personalized and on-point presentations and close with empathy. There's no excuse for not logging your activities. It takes a matter of a few seconds with most of the user-friendly CRM platforms today. And it may seem like a tedious and time-consuming task, but spending just a mere 10 seconds to track or log each activity usually only counts for less than 20 minutes per working day. You should look at your activity logging as a great investment. 20 minutes per day in exchange for some of the most crucial sales data anyone could ask for. You need to know how many sales you need to make to reach your goals. You need to know when to stop wasting time on dead leads. You need to help marketing figure out what sources perform best so they can invest in better leads and help you make more sales. That is why logging everything is crucial. Open multiple choice questions. Another unconscious questioning habit to avoid when qualifying your prospects is asking them open multiple choice questions. This habit occurs when you ask a good solid open question and then convert it into a closed question by adding some options at the end. You may ask your prospect a good solid opening question like, how are you currently promoting your business at the moment? But if you suggest a couple of options at the end by saying something like, are you using things like banner advertising or search engine marketing? then you've essentially converted an open question into a closed one. In my experience, when one of the options you mention are correct, most prospects will confirm which one and offer no further details. This scenario results in you having to quickly think again about what question to ask next, and potentially also results in you missing out on any additional information the prospect may have given you if you had allowed them to answer by themselves. Many things can drive unconscious habits. The key to overcoming them is to become aware of them and then to create a more powerful alternative habit to replace them. If you ask a good open-ended question, put your hand over your mouth if you need to or figure out another effective way to stop yourself and kick the habit. 
I once suggested a salesperson make a small amendment to the list of questions he actually had written down on his desk. At the end of each one, I suggested he just add the words in big capital letters, SHUT UP. Just remember, whatever solution you use, good habits are created the same way as bad ones, by applying them repeatedly. Your questioning strategy. In my experience, most salespeople don't have any structure, process, or general meaning behind the questions they ask at the beginning of a conversation with a prospect. Most ask cliche rapport building questions to try and make friends and bond with the prospect because they think that is what is key. Wrong. The truth is, your prospects are sick and tired of having the same cliche bonding and rapport sessions with salespeople. It's old school, it's boring, and it's obvious. When I ask most salespeople if they have a set list of questions they need to ask a prospect, they usually rely on one of the following instead. A. Their natural rapport building skills, or B. A checklist of things they need to qualify a lead in or out. Let's talk about the natural rapport builder first, because I do love these people. They often believe they are so gifted at having conversations and getting along with people that they don't need a plan, structure, or list of questions. Sadly, this delusion leads them to failure. In my experience, natural rapport builders start every conversation randomly, and if their call starts randomly, they end it randomly, making it pretty much impossible to achieve their call objective. If this sounds like you, pay attention. People will buy from you because they like you, but that does not mean they will buy just anything from you. If you rely on your natural rapport building skills alone, it will make life very difficult when you need to qualify out the leads who have no needs, no budget, or no general interest at all. You need to have structure and strategy when it comes to questioning. It starts with knowing your call objective, but it also goes with your key qualifying criteria. I highly recommend that you spend some time to write down a basic list of essential criteria your prospect needs to meet to qualify for your solution, and then write down a list of questions you need to ask to uncover that information. Be aware that the first draft you, you actually create will be long and probably excessive. What you need to do with your first draft is separate the nice to have from the need to have criteria. You must then focus on the criteria and questions that identify if a prospect needs what you have and separate those things from all of the other more operational type of questions. It's important your conversations with your prospects don't sound like interviews. You could ask 100 questions if you tried, but most of these would be pointless if it turns out the prospect doesn't have a primary need for what your solution is. So narrow down your main qualification questions for the original call to maybe just four or five if possible. The answers to those questions should give you the information you need to decide whether or not to continue qualifying the prospect. For example, if I were to sell SEO services to someone, I would look for prospects with websites that have poor SEO. 
I would avoid the mistake of making foolish assumptions that the prospect does not already have a solution or that they value SEO. And instead, I would start by asking questions about what tools or processes they have in place for SEO, how well they rank, and then maybe ask how important getting organic traffic is to them. Within just a few simple questions, you can quickly uncover if a prospect already has something in place, and most importantly, if they see value in the potential outcome you can offer. So, focus on the fundamental needs of your prospect first, and ask all of the other questions once you sense the prospect needs what you offer. It will save you endless wasted hours on talking with prospects who don't have a need for your solution. The power of closed questions. I talk a lot about the importance of using open-ended questions to get detailed responses from your prospects to avoid them killing the conversation with one-word answers. In fact, most sales trainers and experienced salespeople will teach you that using lots of open-ended questions is the recipe for sales success. But I like to go against the grain and teach you about the power of using closed-ended questions too. I've already mentioned how closed-ended questions can be used to get confirmation on a meeting time or date, but closed-ended questions are also perfect for isolating and making a key point at the beginning of a conversation too. Let's say I'm selling CRM software and I know my prospect is a large organization who uses a CRM more suited to small businesses. I know they're going to be struggling or missing out badly in some specific areas, but I can't and don't make any foolish assumptions. I also don't want to risk insulting the prospect and losing the opportunity by making this point myself either. I need to ask a set of questions that would get my prospect to make this point for me, and that's where both my questioning strategy and the usage of open and closed-ended questions will come in. If I've done a little homework on the prospect, I will already know what CRM they have in place and have a good idea of how many users they have. But using this information right away would be a mistake and a potential disadvantage to me. I therefore would start the conversation by asking what CRM platform the prospect currently uses and how many users they have on that platform. This information provides me with an opportunity to make a strong point that using so many users on a small business CRM is surely not optimal. But this approach would likely build up resistance between myself and the prospect. So instead, I'll use a closed-ended question to clarify what has been said by the prospect in a way that will hopefully get my point across without me having to say it. Sometimes just repeating back what was said and adding silence at the end is enough to make a point. But sometimes I might need to adjust my tone. So if I ask the closed-ended question, so just to confirm, you have 150 users working on the Zebra CRM platform? And if I ask that, of course, in a type of tone I did there, in a sort of shocked type of tone, then that may straight away make my point or at least raise the suspicion from the prospect that something's not quite right. At this stage in the conversation, I'm not looking to have the prospect admit 
that they know they're using a wrong CRM platform for the size of their organization. But I do want to make sure they are psychologically telling themselves that they know. By just repeating back what a prospect said using a closed-ended question, I can turn on a light bulb in the head and have them realize something obvious without having to state it. If the prospect did not have a light bulb moment, I would probably tailor my questions around the weaknesses I know about in their current solution, avoiding forcibly making my point again. It's quite common that most small business CRM solutions lack a comprehensive reporting functionality. And even though I know this, I would again maybe ask the prospect how they measure their call activity, pipelines or commissions and such things. In my experience, most companies using inadequate CRM platforms end up pulling data into spreadsheets from a variety of different sources such as the CRM, phone systems and other software which usually results in a time-consuming process that still delivers limited data. Now, this direction might mean I get the opportunity to use a closed-ended question, such as, so you have someone spending 30 to 40 hours per month pulling this data into a spreadsheet, and it's still not entirely accurate? Now, at this point in the conversation, if I'd used a question like that, I've hopefully made my point by asking the right questions and repeating back the information shared using the closed-ended questions. And again, without having to push my opinion. This approach makes it much easier for me to come forward with my solution in the end. Closed-ended questions are just as powerful and useful as open-ended questions, but only when used in the right way at the right time. Now, my favorite part about them is that they avoid potentially insulting or building up resistance with prospects. And they are ideal for developing trust and rapport as they again demonstrate your excellent listening skills to the prospect. In the great words of the sales legend Tom Hopkins, if you say it, they doubt it. But if they say it, it's true. If you can put your words into your prospect's mouth, they will sell themselves on your solution. Effectively using closed-ended questions takes practice. You'll want to avoid sounding stupid by repeating back exactly what your prospect says, so always give yourself a second or two to think about how exactly to repeat back or paraphrase what was said in order to add as much clarity as possible and make your point. How to handle premature pricing questions. Despite how well you prepare your questions for qualifying a new prospect, you're always going to come across the one who asks about pricing early in the conversation. Too many salespeople fail to prepare for this situation, which often results in the pricing discussion taking place before the prospect has any idea of the value on offer. It's a tough decision whether or not to discuss pricing early with a prospect because it does depend on the solution you're offering. Also depends on the length of your sales cycles and on the type of prospect. There's been psychological studies that prove it's better to receive good news before bad news because humans often struggle to get over the bad news if it comes before the good. Not discussing your pricing until you present the value of your solution is the ideal strategy. But if you refuse to give pricing, you always risk a prospect walking away from a conversation because they assume your prices are expensive. 
Now, there are two typical types of prospects who will bring up pricing earlier in a conversation. You've got prospects who have little or no budget, and you've got decision makers who don't like to waste time. Of course, you don't want to frighten anyone off by refusing to give them an idea of pricing, but at the same time, you don't want to qualify out those prospects who ask because the budget is the issue. I always recommend using the price range response as a first strategy. So when your prospect asks about the price early on, you tell them that your solution ranges between your rock bottom price, anything up to your really top high price. You then tell them you'll be able to give them a more concrete idea of the exact investment required, but you just need to ask them a few questions first. I would say the most important part of this strategy is that you do not get diverted into discussing the pricing in more detail at this point. You must stick to your questioning and qualifying strategy and discover if the prospect has any needs for what you have first. If you let the prospect take you off your strategy, you'll very often end up not being able to recover and will end up concluding the call without having reached your overall objective. How to crush your competitors. Regardless of how often you come up against your competitors, there's one common mistake you must avoid. Do not ever attack, criticize, or say negative things about them. It's unprofessional and it's a tried, tested, and failed sales strategy. The more attention you give your competitors, the bigger problem they become. Now, I'm not advising here that you pretend your competitors don't exist. I'm just recommending you avoid talking about them when you speak with prospects. You're going to come across prospects who are either already using your competitor's solution and others who are considering it at the same time as your own. You'll also come across competitors trying to take your own clients. How you deal with each of these scenarios is very different. When you're working to pull a prospect away from the competition, you need to be strategic and go in with either something of a unique value or a huge discount. Now you will of course need to ask the prospect your standard qualifying questions to ensure they have needs, but you'll also need to ask them questions about their current solution. Too many salespeople make the mistake of going in aggressively when it comes to pulling a prospect away from a competitor. This aggressive approach is often due to their passionate belief that they have a better solution for the prospect. Sadly, that passion can quickly turn into frustration when the prospect doesn't instantly believe them. I would again advise you to show professionalism and patience with your competitor's clients, just as in any other situation. Someone using a competitor's solution is likely to show you more resistance than a regular prospect because they know your end goal. Here is a list of questions you can use to disarm your competitor's clients and softly qualify them at the same time. What solution do you have in place today? How long have you been using it? What do you like most about it? What made you choose that solution in the first place? Have you managed to achieve those objectives so far? Who made the decision to invest in the current solution? And tell me, if you were the CEO of that competitor, what would you change about the solution or include in future updates? 
These questions will uncover how happy your prospect is with their current solution and give you a sense of how open they might be to discussing an alternative. Now, it's important not to be too pushy if you can hear your prospect is happy and not interested in moving. It's much more powerful to leave the prospect with a professional impression of you and your company so you're first in line when your competitor upsets them. When a competitor is trying to steal your clients, you must first ask yourself whether you've treated this client well or not. Have you offered them excellent service or have you just taken their money and abandoned them? Setting up simple reminders to say a quick hello to your clients every couple of months will keep a large proportion of them loyal and you can even automate the process if you don't have the human resources. Sadly, most companies or account managers either don't have the knowledge or can't be bothered to set up courtesy calls or emails and they have to deal with the constant threat of losing clients to the competition. The advantage you have against other sales professionals who are trying to take your clients is that they are probably doing everything that I am advising you not to do right now. They'll likely be aggressively pursuing your clients and attacking your weaknesses in a desperate and unprofessional manner. If you've served your clients well and have a solid solution, your clients will defend you. However, if you've abandoned them and failed to create a lasting relationship, you'll be in trouble. The dazzle of added features and benefits or the smell of cost savings is always going to catch the attention of a certain number of your clients, no matter what, and no matter how you treat them. This is where you'll need to defend yourself. To handle this scenario, you'll need to put your emotions to one side and ask your client to do the same with the cost savings or the new features and benefits on offer from the competitor. You must firstly communicate how sad you are to hear your client is considering an alternative solution, but bite your tongue and communicate that you understand it's just business. You must avoid appearing to be defensive and remain calm and professional. Your next step will be to ask your client for a few minutes of their time so you can run over a brief review of their account. Your goal is to re-qualify their needs to see if anything has changed since they first became a client. By qualifying your client like a new prospect, you'll not only highlight any new requirements they have, but you'll also remind the client of their reasons for selecting you in the first place. Your end goal is to have your client reevaluate if the new features and benefits or cost savings on offer from your competitor are worthwhile when compared to the potential headache of switching suppliers. Remember that your job is just to ask the right questions and not to force your opinion. The psychology behind great questions will always outweigh the forceful persuasion of an elevator pitch. If you come up against your competitor when hunting for new clients, your strategy will naturally need to be adapted. I mentioned earlier that the more attention you give your competitors, the bigger problem they become. In my experience, most salespeople get defensive and start pitching all of the reasons why their solution is better than others when they hear that a competitor is involved. This approach will get you nowhere. It makes you sound desperate and tells the prospect you're afraid of your competition. I will again repeat that your strategy should be to remain calm when your prospect mentions the competition. 
shock your prospect by doing the opposite of what they expect and start praising your competitor before flowing smoothly into your qualifying questions. The best form of attack is not defense, it's confidence. You must also be prepared for prospects hijacking you by asking you what makes you better than such and such a competitor down the road. You must be humble and again compliment the competitor mentioned, even go as far as saying that they have a similar solution if that's the, if that's the actual case. You should then consider telling your prospect that rather than boring them with a list of reasons why they should choose you, it would be much more efficient if you asked a few more questions to find out if any of those reasons even matter. Whether your prospect is asking you about your competitor, your pricing, or even the technical aspects of your solution early in a conversation, you must learn to park these questions to avoid losing control of your call or meeting. Here's a few one-liners you can use to park questions and shift the focus of your conversation back into the qualifying process. Number one, yeah, I know them well, and they have a very competitive solution too, but I would rather ask a few questions to find out if we can help you before I try to compete for your business. Number two, I could easily list a number of unique features and benefits that we offer that they don't but I'd rather avoid that until I know if they would be of any value to you first. On number three, I honestly can't answer that question until I understand your needs first, because in my experience, not all clients are the same. Regardless of how good you get at parking your prospects questions, you'll eventually have to go head to head with your competitors, and your best weapon is to master how to plant seeds of doubt around their weaknesses. If you know your competitor is expensive, it will do you little good to simply point this out to your prospect, and it will potentially make you appear defensive and insecure. Alternatively, if you ask your prospect in a slightly concerned tone whether or not they'd seen the pricing model of your competitor yet, it will bring that weakness to their attention. It can also be a great advantage to put together a list of your competitors' deficiencies in preparation for this conversation as well. Rather than telling these weaknesses to your prospect, you can take a more consultative approach and give them a list of recommended questions they should ask your competitor. In the event your prospect seems keen to go with your competitor, your last-ditch approach may sound something like this. I know them well and they have a great solution too. All I would ask before you decide to go ahead with them is just to ask them a few questions about some critical areas of their solution which I feel might be important to you. Do you have a pen handy? I recommended you to create a spreadsheet earlier in this book with a list of features, benefits and outcomes of your solution. And I would now recommend you add a fourth column to that spreadsheet named qualifying questions. You then need to think about a question you could ask to qualify whether your prospect has a real need for each particular feature or not. Let's say you know one of your competitors is weak when it comes to data protection. Before using this as an advantage, you'll first want to discover if it's relevant or not for your prospect. So you could just ask your prospect how important data protection is for them. If you then receive a positive response that's important, you should then recommend they ask the competitor in question about how they handle data protection.
Now, this strategy may sound a little crazy, but the reverse psychology this has on the prospect and the panicky response your prospect will get when asking your competitor about these questions, especially if they're a weakness, will put you in the driver's seat for winning the prospect's business. I would actually go as far to say that 80% of your prospects won't even bother calling your competitors to ask these questions if you master the art of planting seeds of doubt in their heads about your competitors' offerings. Just remember, when you stay calm, cool, and professional, you demonstrate an air of confidence to your prospect about you and your solution. And confidence sells. The rebound technique. Another way of parking questions is by using what I like to call the rebound technique, which is a well-known questioning technique that's been around for years. Also known as the porcupine, hot potato, or reverse, the rebound is a valuable questioning technique you can use as a sidekick to your open-ended questions. The basic concept is to answer questions with questions. By using this questioning technique, you can keep rebounding the spotlight off yourself and back over to your prospect. It's also great for buying you some time to think about an answer, for getting clarification on things, and for when you're trying to get commitment. A classic uh, example would be if somebody asks you a clear buying signal such as, do you have a blue phone cover in stock? To which you would reply, would you like that to be in a dark blue or a light blue? The idea with the above example is that the prospect has now committed to a specific product and is closed. I often find that salespeople both abuse and misuse this technique, and I would like to help you avoid doing the same. Using the rebound technique as a closing technique should only be done when the timing is right. It's not going to work very well if you sell expensive solutions and try closing too early. If you were in the closing stages of the sales process when selling a new car and the prospect asked if the alloy wheels as shown on the display model are included in the price, you could say, if I can add the alloy wheels to the deal, are you happy to go ahead today? However, if you use the same technique with someone who had just walked into your showroom for the first time and asked the same question, they would most likely laugh at you. I've also heard some people make absolute fools of themselves by responding with ridiculously obvious rebound questions too. I once witnessed a member of my, uh, my own team receive a call from a new prospect who asked if the currency choices on the website were in US dollars or Australian dollars. The salesperson tried to use a rebound question by asking what currency the prospect would like them to be in, which was obviously not a choice. Thankfully, the prospect responded by laughing and saying it would be nice to have that choice and asked again for the answer. The most powerful time to use the rebound technique is when you need to gain further clarification into why your prospect is asking a specific question. Now, many of your prospects will likely be too polite to get straight to the point about certain topics, so they will ask you a question that tiptoes around the issue. For example, if my wife needs me to pick up the kids on one of her scheduled pickup days because her boss or one of her colleagues ask if she can swap shifts, I always get the same text message asking how my schedule looks on that particular day. What she really wants to ask is if I can pick up the kids on that day. But to get to this point, I always need to respond with a rebound question, which is typically, 
What makes you ask, my dear? It's not always this easy to spot when a prospect is not asking you what they really want to ask, but I find if you practice using the what makes you ask rebound question enough, you'll become more comfortable and skilled in using the technique itself. You should avoid overusing the rebound technique though. If you do it several times in the same conversation, it will become evident and irritating to your prospect and lose its effectiveness. I've used the technique so much on my wife that it rarely works anymore and she has become better at using it than me. This is probably one of the best and most efficient questioning techniques around. You too should consider practicing at home on your family and friends and test how well it works for you. How to spot buying signals. Knowing how to spot a buying signal is crucial when you work in sales. Your ability to detect them can be the difference between closing a quick sale or losing the sale altogether. In my experience, and to be brutally honest, most salespeople have no idea what a buying signal is. If you do not know how to spot a buying signal, you'll miss opportunities to close sales. Alternatively, if you misidentify a non-buying signal for a buying signal, you could lose the sale altogether by trying to close the deal too early and frightening off your prospect. A buying signal is a verbal or non-verbal sign your prospect sends, which indicates they might be ready to buy your solution. When I ask my uh, other clients and students for an example of a buying signal, they always come up with the same one. They say that when a prospect asks about the cost of your solution, it's a strong buying signal. Sadly, this is fairly inaccurate. There's a thin line between signals that say, I'm ready to buy, and those that say, I'm interested, or I might be interested. When a prospect asks about the cost of your solution, it's usually just a signal of interest. Think about it. Unless you're a wealthy person, a very wealthy person, you always need to know the cost of something before you consider buying it, right? A real buying signal usually comes in the form of a question from your prospect, which positions them as the owner or user of your solution. For example, if you sell furniture and someone inquires about delivery times, that is a buying signal. If they were not interested in buying, they would not be asking about delivery, right? If you sell mobile phones and someone emails to inquire if you have a specific model in stock, that too is a strong buying signal. In both of those scenarios, the prospect has already decided in their mind that they are going to buy your solution. You know this because the questions they asked are only relevant if they owned the solution. Another classic example of a buying signal is when a prospect asks something about the terms and conditions of an agreement. If your prospect asks about terms in a contract, it's time to start closing. Naturally, you may want to use the rebound technique to ensure they have no objections about the topic in question, but if not, you should waste no time moving forward. If a prospect calls you back and starts a conversation by saying, I just had one last question, what your prospect is really saying is they just have one last question before going ahead. In my experience, prospects who come back to you are usually ready to go ahead, especially if they're using lines like that one. When a prospect asks about how long it takes to get started with your solution or what date you can start the work, this too is a major buying signal. So questions about delivery, start dates or completion dates are all buying signals. 
Another great one is when prospects ask about additional costs. They may ask about expenses for delivery, or the added cost of renewal, upgrades, or other services. When asking these questions, prospects are picturing themselves as the owner or user of your solution and have therefore already mentally bought what you're selling. One of the most obvious buying signals is when your prospect asks about payment methods. They may ask if you accept credit cards or if you offer finance options. These questions are the easiest buying signals to spot and you should never lose a sale after being asked this type of question. As I already mentioned, asking rebound questions such as what makes you ask or when would you like delivery or which do you prefer will help you quickly transition from buying signal to closing the sale. Just be careful not to act too soon and ensure you have covered all the other steps in the sales process. Past questions. Drop the jargon. Another unconscious habit I've become aware of over the years is the increased usage of company jargon and industry buzzwords. It's easy to take for granted what you know and it can cost you dearly. If you talk to your prospect like they have the same level of knowledge as you do, you risk making them feel stupid. You can also make your prospects feel inadequate and uncomfortable when you ask them what I like to call past questions. These questions could include the jargon or buzzwords I'm talking about, but they could also be questions your prospect can't answer for other reasons as well. I find this happens with salespeople who sell technical products such as software, hosting services, or medical equipment and such things. It's easy to get so engulfed in your own work that you begin to assume the world knows what you're talking about when they haven't the foggiest idea. I remember trying to give my dad instructions on how to send me a website address a few years back. I asked him to send me the URL so I could take a look. I was rather taken aback when he asked me what a URL was, especially given he'd been using a computer for almost two decades. Some prospects will feel you have the upper hand if you know they have little or no knowledge of the solution they're interested in. So they may try to sound savvier than they actually are. These prospects can easily trick you into using jargon, buzzwords, or past questions. I used to try and talk about computers like I was an expert when I was a young teenager. My uncle Brian used to build them, so he taught me a thing or two. I remember going into a computer shop once and asking the shop assistant about the new PC I saw on offer in the newspaper. I told him my old one was getting a little slow and noisy and I wanted something more powerful. I felt in complete control of that conversation until he asked me what kind of processor I had in the current machine. I didn't have a clue, which made me feel stupid and vulnerable. Needless to say, I said I would take a look around and get back to him. Just because your prospects show an interest in or maybe even already own something doesn't mean they know everything about it. Think of how many people own a car but don't have any idea about what engine they've got in it. I speak from lots of experience when I tell you that 9 out of 10 people will never raise their hands to ask for clarification on something they don't understand. I've seen this in sales dialogues with prospects and I've tested it with people in a live audience when I'm giving a presentation to. It's easy to tell if people need clarification in a face-to-face -face environment, but it's impossible when you're selling over the phone, so be cautious. Next time you're qualifying a new prospect, 
Be sure to simplify your questions and avoid using technical terms or industry buzzwords. A prospect will never feel insulted if you ask them how much they know about something before discussing the topic, but they will disengage with you if you make them feel stupid and vulnerable. Carrying bad karma. One of the worst mistakes you can make in sales is to carry bad karma. Working in sales includes a lot of stress and rejection and it's easy to let it get the best of you. It can start off with just one bad call that can quickly turn into a deep, dark and lonely place. Carrying bad karma, taking rejection personally and allowing the pressure of sales to get to you is what can quickly bring you from being at the top of your game one day to being the bottom the next. Bad karma is what kills confidence and confidence is the number one ingredient you need to succeed in sales or any other profession. We've all seen plenty of examples of some of the world's top athletes going from hero to zero in a short space of time. I see this with salespeople all the time. They can be pumped up and confident one minute and wallowing in self-doubt the next. You'll have to deal with feelings of insecurity and self-doubt at some point in your career in sales, but what will separate you from the rest is how you fight back from it. I challenge you to always remind yourself that you never become bad at what you do overnight. Every day, you are a day better than yesterday. The only thing that changes is your mindset. I was so aggressive when I was a young and inexperienced sales rookie. I used to cold call like an animal. I didn't take rejection personally. I didn't care about it at all. I would just keep plowing through my calls like a bull. But unsurprisingly, I became tired and eventually started to slow down. It was only then when the constant rejection and my lack of results became clear. I realized I was carrying bad karma. All of that rejection was unconsciously affecting me. I was not only taking it into all of my calls, but I was also bringing it home with me. My mood was dark. I would go home in a sour mood and snap at the slightest thing. Getting out of bed for work back then was a struggle. I cannot for the life of me remember the person who helped me get out of that mindset. The one person who told me I was carrying bad karma throughout all of my calls. But whoever it was, I'm forever grateful. From that very moment, after hearing those words, my prospecting results and attitude completely changed. It's easy to carry bad karma through your calls without being aware you're doing so. You have one or two calls that go badly and before you know it, you're just accepting that it's just going to be another rotten day. The reality is that if you were aware of bad karma, your bad day would have stopped after your first bad call. It's all about your mental mindset. If you tell yourself you're going to have a bad day, you'll have one. I used to do what a lot of salespeople do today and vocally express my feelings in the office after the call was disconnected. You may think this is a good strategy to help get it out of your system, but it does not help. It elevates your negative mood just in time for your next call and does the same for your colleagues too. If you have a bad call, take a deep breath, smile, and continue to your next call. If that one goes bad too, Grab a cup of coffee or go and get some fresh air for a couple of minutes. Most importantly though, you must put yourself into a peak state 
before your calls. Maybe you like to get pumped up before you start calling or maybe you like to relax. Whatever you prefer, spend just a couple of minutes helping yourself get into that state before you start dialing by listening to music, reading or just sitting in silence. The more consciously aware you become of your mindset, the more control you'll have over it and the less stress you'll create for yourself. The 1 to 10 questioning technique. On a scale of 1 to 10, how would you rate this book so far? The 1 to 10 questioning technique is a handy option when qualifying your prospects, especially when you need to get them to give you honest answers. Many salespeople know this technique because it's an easy one to remember and they've probably heard someone use it in the past. The downside, as with other techniques, is that many salespeople misuse it. The most common mistakes when using this technique is to use it too many times in the same conversation. I often hear salespeople using it several times with the same prospect, especially when presenting their solutions. The worst habit you can fall into is asking, on a scale of 1 to 10, what do you think so far, at multiple times of your presentation. It will quickly become obvious and irritating to your prospect. You must learn how to use a variety of different questioning techniques to avoid using the same ones all the time. The broader your questioning toolkit, the less likely it will be that your prospect will start picking up on your methods. Not many of the questioning techniques I teach are new. Most are decades old. What I've discovered though, is that many of the techniques become much more powerful when used in the right way at the right time. The one to 10 questioning technique is perfect to use either when you need to get your prospect to answer a tough question or when you need to isolate some concrete numbers. For example, Rather than asking your prospect how happy they are with their current supplier, you could ask them how happy they are on a scale of 1 to 10. Alternatively, if you wanted to get a concrete idea of how much time your prospect spends on a particular task, you could ask them how much time on a scale of 1 to 10 they use on that task. Then you can convert the answer into a percentage. That's useful because 20% of someone's time sounds a lot more severe than a 2 out of 10. Here's an example of how using the 1 to 10 questioning technique together with the closed-ended question I mentioned earlier combined to make a powerful statement without you having to state a point. You could ask, on a scale of 1 to 10, with 10 being all and 1 being none, how much time are you spending on this task at the moment? Let's say the prospect responds by saying, I would say maybe a 3 or 4 out of 10. And then you respond in a shocked tone, so you're saying that you spend 30 to 40% of your time on this task alone? It's a notable example of how much more powerful a technique becomes when used at the right time and in combination with another technique. Once again, I will urge you though, to put time aside to write down a couple of variations of this technique for your business and then test them live with your prospects to see which one works best. The no way out technique. Another classic useful questioning technique is what I like to call the no way out technique. 
I learnt this one years ago from Tom Hopkins, who calls it the alternate advance. It's perfect for locking prospects into selecting one of two options and for avoiding classic responses to your questions such as no, I'll call you back, I'll need to get back to you on that one, I'm not sure yet, we need more time to think it over. Now you could try asking more open-ended questions to avoid these responses but sometimes you need to be more direct to help your prospects make decisions and speed up the sales process. Let's say I was trying to sell a solution to help get traffic to someone's website. I might typically ask a question like, I can see you're using search engine marketing, so I was wondering if you needed any help getting more traffic to your website. This approach may sound okay, but it gives the prospects the option to shoot me down with a no thanks, goodbye response. But with a slight shift in my approach, I could instead ask, I can see you're using search engine marketing and just wanted to ask if getting traffic to your website is your key focus or is converting that traffic into leads more important for you. What I've done here is locked the prospect down to choosing one of two options to avoid the no thanks goodbye response. You'll also find that even if none of the two options you present are relevant, your prospect will tell you what is important simply due to the way you frame the question. The most classic use of this technique is to lock your prospect into a date for a meeting or a follow-up call. I constantly hear salespeople asking suicidal questions such as, when can I call you back? Or can I give you a call back next week? When you want a commitment from your prospect, you must take it with a firm hand. You must avoid asking for permission or giving control of the sales process to your prospect. Instead, try asking something like, does later this week work for you or is it best we speak again early next week? You must not doubt the outcome you want. You need to assume it's happening and your prospect will follow. You could also use this when trying to get decision makers involved in the sales process as well. Many salespeople are afraid of asking if they can speak to the decision makers and at best may hesitantly ask if it's possible to speak with them directly. The direct sales professional will instead ask something like, is it best I speak to your CEO directly or should we all jump on a call together? Now, of course, this doesn't always guarantee that you'll get the decision maker on the call, but it's 10 times more effective than asking for permission. Once again, this is another technique that can be combined with others to increase its effectiveness. It's also another example of a technique that is more powerful when used at the right time. A perfect example would be combining it with the rebound technique as part of a test close. For example, if a prospect sent you a buying signal by asking what payment options were available, you could rebound using a no way out question and say, we can offer either payment upfront via credit card or monthly installments. Which do you prefer? As usual, I recommend you write down and test a couple of examples of this technique with your colleagues and then test it with your prospects. Again, remembering not to use it more than once or twice in any single conversation. Buyer motives. Before you can become a master of sales, you must understand the real reasons behind why people buy. You must also learn to uncover the emotional why behind those reasons. 
When I ask my students to define the word motive, they usually correctly describe it as your reason for doing something. What they forget to add though, is that it can also be a reason for not doing something. Because you're either motivated to do something, or you're not. There are two motives that drive people to make any decision in life. Pain and pleasure. You're either driven by moving away from pain, moving towards pleasure, or a mixture of both. Now, it sounds simple enough, but the challenging part comes when you're working with a balance of both. You could be balancing pain versus pleasure, pain versus pain, or pain and pleasure versus pain, and so on. Now, regardless of how hard or easy a decision may be, there's always a motive behind why you choose to do what you do. Take, for example, what motivates you to put clothes on before leaving your home every morning. This decision is most likely highly driven by the avoidance of pain, which comes in the form of embarrassment or the chill on your privates. And when compared to the warmth and comfort of wearing clothes, the naked option stands little chance of winning. Just think about any time in the past where you had a decision to make. It could have been moving to another country, stripping down to your shorts or bikini in front of a group of strangers on the first day of vacation, or quitting a job or something similar. I always like to use the example of stripping down to your shorts or bikini on the first day of vacation. If you're a pale, white, out-of-shape British person like me, then stripping down in front of a pool or beach full of strangers isn't always a simple decision. The classic scenario usually puts the painful embarrassment of showing your pale, white body against the pleasure of getting a beautiful golden tan. On most occasions, the pleasure wins, but it depends on the scenario. There are always other factors that can drive a decision one way or another. For example, if someone had a bad experience of being bullied in school when they got undressed, or if they had a large birthmark on their body or something, this could easily swing a decision so that the pain outweighs the pleasure. If you think about this from a biased perspective, it means every scenario is unique. It also means you need to stop thinking about your prospects like a contact at a company you want to close and more like a unique individual. Believe it or not, your prospects don't make buying decisions because of what's in it for their company. They're driven by what's in it for themselves. The three stages of motive. It's important to understand that the motives of pain and pleasure can come in three stages. Past, present and potential. You could be dealing with a prospect who has experienced pain or pleasure either in the past or the present or is thinking about what potential pain or pleasure could occur if they make a decision. Now, each one of these stages could easily outweigh the other, depending on the circumstances. But it's common that pain or pleasure in the present can be the most powerful. So let's go back to pale British me on the beach, for example. I'd say I have an average body, so my level of discomfort when taking off clothes is on the small scale. The same applies to the pleasure motive because I'm a married guy with two young kids. It's not very often I run around half naked showing off my tan, so my pain slash pleasure motive are fairly evenly balanced. But when we look at this same scenario using the three stages of motive, 
the decision may start to get a little easier because I then balance the immediate pain in the present of taking my clothes off now against the potential pleasure of getting a nice tan in the future. This decision for me is usually always an evenly balanced one. And because I'm not ashamed of my body or too bothered about the opinion of others, I usually just strip off and jump in. But the second you added or changed the stage of motive, the decision could be entirely different. If I were a single guy in great shape, my motivation for getting a great tan would be much stronger and I wouldn't even think about any pain. On the other hand, if I put on a lot of weight and felt ashamed of my body, I would keep on my clothes because the potential pain of the present would be much stronger than the potential pleasure. Now, believe it or not, this is what you're working with every time you deal with a prospect. Therefore, it's critical to get down to an emotional level of questioning with each prospect. Everyone has hidden pains and pleasures, and they might be the deciding factor behind whether or not your prospect says yes or no to your proposal. Questions to uncover motive. You need to overcome your fear of getting down to a personal level with your prospects to uncover their motives. This is because they're unlikely just to come out and start telling you about their past or present problems. Most salespeople use the strategy of asking opening questions like, what is your current biggest challenge at the moment? To uncover some pain. But like many other sales strategies, it's cliche and it's overused. 99% of salespeople end up talking to prospects about exactly the same challenges, giving you a chance to stand out by talking to them on a deeper level about their personal problems or goals. To get deeper, you'll need to begin using with what I like to call impact questions. You should integrate these questions into your overall questioning and qualifying strategy to ensure you not only uncover your prospect's needs, but discover just how serious those needs are. This will also help you save wasted time working on prospects who have a need, but don't necessarily have the motivation to make a decision right now. There are two types of impact questions. There are general impact questions and there are personal impact questions. Once you've qualified a prospect enough to uncover that they have a basic need for your solution, you should then ask them a general impact question. General impact questions usually focus on the knock-on effect that something is having or will have on your prospect's department, website or business. For example, if a prospect is having problems with high shopping cart abandonment rates, you could ask what impact that is having on their business. You should probably consider the position of your contact person before deciding what area to focus your impact question on. If you're dealing with a business owner of a small company, talk about the impact on the business. Alternatively, if you're dealing with a mid-level manager in a large corporation, focus on the impact on the department or team. Your prospect's answer to your impact question should give you a reliable indication of how much of a need they actually have. But you need to pay close attention, as usual, to the tone and choice of words in their response. If you sense urgency, remember to use closed-ended questions to highlight the pain or pleasure at stake before proceeding onto a personal impact question. By asking your prospect, what impact the particular problem or potential pleasure could have on them personally in their role, 
you'll potentially take your conversation to an emotional level. If you're dealing with a prospect who has a real need, maybe you'll discover that they work 60-hour weeks for a boss who breathes down their neck all day, or maybe they're seeking a promotion and your solution could help them. I also find that if you're talking about pain, this can be the perfect time to ask, what happens if this problem continues? You then need to shut up, let this question sink in, and wait silently for your prospect's response, no matter how long it takes. If you have a prospect with a deep emotional need, you're no longer talking about offering a solution to make their company's life easier or make their boss richer. You're talking to them on a personal level about improving their life. This is what will make you stand out from other salespeople. And this is what will have your contact person pushing your solution so hard you'd think they were the ones getting the commission from the sale. There are so many people stuck in jobs that they hate and you'll never motivate them to invest in your solution if you do not tap into their personal motives. I guarantee you that if you start practicing and applying these impact questions, you'll instantly improve as a salesperson and sales will also become a little more interesting for you in the long run. How to uncover decision processes, timelines and stakeholders. Forecasting sales results accurately is every sales manager's nightmare. I sat down with one of my clients a short while back who was new to the sales management role in his company. He had asked specifically for help in sales forecasting. We sat together for three hours and I shared my recipe for sales forecasting based on my experience as a sales leader, which consisted of the following. Number one, tracking the past historical data. Number two, understanding how each team member typically forecasted. Number three, looking at how the individual performed in the previous month. Number four, reviewing the age of the opportunities in the forecast. Number five, considering how consistent each team member usually was. And I topped this all off by insisting he bear in mind that most salespeople commonly overestimate, so he should deduct 20% of his overall forecast once he had done the math, or maybe I should call it science. By the end of the session, my client appeared to need a stiff drink. Now, my strategy for accurate forecasting for his team would have been different had he been in this scenario where he could actually change his CRM platform and the processes involved. But as with most sales managers, he didn't have that luxury. Forecasting can be one of the most frustrating and stressful parts of working in sales. It's often like science to try and estimate if a deal is coming in at all, let alone to allocate a time on when it might come in. The reason for this is that 99% of salespeople fall short when it comes to uncovering the decision-making processes inside of their prospects' companies. Some salespeople are afraid to ask. Some ask in bizarre, uncomfortable ways, and others are too lazy. Without knowing what the decision process looks like at your prospects' company, it's impossible to estimate when they will close, what hurdles or objections you can expect, or what concrete next steps you should start preparing for and agreeing on with your prospects. Thankfully, I've formulated a strategy for uncovering this vital information so you can start getting better control of your sales pipelines 
without even mentioning the word decision. Firstly, you must stop waiting until the end of the sales process to uncover the decision processes. It's like an unspoken rule that the discussion about decision processes, timing and stakeholders comes at the end of the sales process, which is a big mistake. When you ask your prospect about the decision-making processes after you have presented your solution and costs, they know what you're doing. This strategy often results in evasive and sometimes misleading answers from your prospect as they would rather avoid dealing with the awkward situation. It's no wonder most salespeople feel uncomfortable asking questions about the decision. It's a lose-lose situation. You know why you're asking and your prospect knows too. Asking at the end of the call or process also ruins a strategy I will give you later in this chapter for setting concrete next steps at the end of the call. Rather than asking the decision-making questions at the end of the sales process, you need to ask them once you've qualified that your prospect has a real need for your solution. Now, depending on the length of your sales cycle, this could come in the middle of your first call or at the beginning of your presentation. The timing immediately disarms your prospect as it feels like part of the qualification questions you've been asking, thus increasing the chances of you getting honest answers. It will also help you find other people who should attend the actual presentation. For the sake of clarity, here is the order in which the steps of this part of your sales process should look. First, you ask your qualifying questions. Then comes the impact questions. Then comes the decision-making questions, after which comes the presentation, after which you discuss the objections and handle the objections. Next is the pricing and maybe the negotiation part, followed finally by the closing. Now, you need to work on how you word these questions to avoid them sounding obvious or awkward. You can do this by using three straightforward and very efficient process questions. I often hear salespeople ask questions such as, who else is involved in making the final decision? And how long will the decision take? To try to uncover the decision-making process. Now, these questions are not only blatantly obvious, but also potentially fail to reveal other vital information about the decision-making process too. The first process question you should ask instead is, what does the internal process look like inside of your company for investing in a solution like this? You can word the question in a variety of other ways to match your scenario, as in this example. If you like what I show you today, what does the internal process look like inside of your company for investing in a solution like this? It's up to you. You mix it up as you like. This initial process question is designed to be broad and will hopefully have your prospect give you a detailed response about any usual and unusual steps in their decision process. You may also discover from their response that they are not familiar with the actual process. Now, this could be a sign that they either lack authority, are new to the company, or have never invested in a solution like yours before. If you've come across specific processes within your industry, this would be a good time to maybe mention them. For instance, if the terms and conditions of your agreement always end up being quizzed and amended by legal teams, double check to see if you can expect this with your prospect. As soon as you've received and jotted down the details of the response, 
move on to the next process question, which is, and who else, apart from yourself, is involved in that process? No matter how far down the decision-making chain your contact is, it would be stupid at this stage to make them feel worthless. By simply using the words, who else, apart from yourself, you'll ensure they still feel like a valuable part of the process. You've now hopefully got the names of everyone else who needs to be involved in the final decision and what part they will play. Again, I recommend you bring up any people or departments that are usually involved if your contact person does not mention them, especially if you're selling high-value solutions to large corporations. Missing a minor detail like the quarterly board meeting that needs to take place before sign-off could result in a radically different timeline. Once you've uncovered the internal decision process and parties involved, all that's left to discover is the timeline by asking, and how long does this process typically take? Asking these three simple process questions will ensure you get all of the decision-making information needed to help you gain complete control over your sales pipeline and forecast your results with pinpoint accuracy. Your closing statement. Once you've qualified the needs of your prospects, uncovered the decision-making processes, and hopefully found a strong motive, you'll be in a position to get a commitment on the next steps. Whether your aim is to book a second call, schedule a meeting, or close the sale, you must show no hesitation when the time is right. In my experience, this is the stage of the call where most salespeople fall short. If you fail to prepare what to say at the end of your calls, you may as well not pick up the phone in the first place. When the time is right, you need to ask for commitment, and this is what I call your closing statement. Just like your opening statement, a closing statement needs to be short, direct, and focused on the benefits and outcomes on offer to your prospect. For example, if I have a prospect who can save time, e.g. the benefit, which they can use to chase their desired promotion, the outcome, and I want them to commit to a final presentation, my closing statement may sound like the following. Mr. Prospect, thanks for answering all of my questions today. I know it can feel like an interview sometimes, but it's important for me to make sure that you actually have a need for what we offer, which seems to be the case. So if I can show you how our solution can help you save up to 40% of your time so you can focus that time working towards that promotion you were talking about, is that something you'd be interested in looking at further? As usual, I will then apply sales silence and be quiet until the prospect responds because he who speaks first loses. If you ask for any form of commitment and then interrupt your prospect before they answer, you'll potentially miss the opportunity and may never get it again. If there are two things I can teach you about closing, it's that silence is golden and that if you don't ask, you won't get. Concrete next steps. In my experience, most sales calls end with an agreement between the buyer and seller that one will send the other an email. Either the salesperson will email more information to the prospects or the prospect will email or get back in touch with the salesperson. The salesperson will usually then either spend weeks trying to get back in contact with the prospects 
or sit patiently, wondering when they will hear from the prospect again. This is usually when the sales process dies. It's critical in sales to have both call structure and call control. And far too many salespeople worry about appearing to be pushy when asking for commitment on the next steps. And it results in the prospect taking complete control over what happens next and when. If this sounds familiar to you, it's time to take back that control. You need to stop asking weak questions such as, when is best I call you back? And start telling your prospect when you'll be calling them. You need to boss this part of the call if you want to stay in control of the sales process. You'll only succeed here if you're assertive. If you've done your job thoroughly enough, then dictating the next steps should be easy. I mentioned previously about an additional advantage of uncovering decision processes earlier in your calls, and this is where that benefit applies. If you've asked about how the decision process works, your prospects should have already told you most of the next steps. So all you need to do now is repeat those steps back to your prospect and add the rest. So an example might sound like this. So I guess the next steps then are that I'll send you an official proposal later today with a breakdown of the investment required. You'll then present that to your manager for approval in your weekly meeting on Monday. And providing you get the green light, the proposal needs to go via your legal team, which you said typically takes around three days. Does that sound about right? Assuming I get confirmation on this, I will then tell the prospect that I will call them on Tuesday of the following week to hopefully discuss start dates and onboarding. By asking the decision process questions earlier, you get valuable information from your prospects, which you use to your advantage to confirm concrete next steps, ensuring that you keep control of the sales process without having to be too bossy. Purposeful mistakes. Another great technique to use in the latter stages of the sales process is to make a purposeful mistake. I discovered this technique by accident, actually, by occasionally making mistakes when confirming details back to my prospects. I noticed that sometimes the prospect would correct me quickly, whereas other times they would just go along with the incorrect information. The purposeful mistake technique can be a terrific way to either test close if your prospect is ready to proceed with the sale or to check if they're misleading you. The idea is to make an error about part of the details your prospect has provided you when repeating it back to them to see if they correct you. For example, if you sense your prospect is trying to postpone making a decision, you could repeat back everything they told you about what happens next and make one or two mistakes. If they correct you, it's a good sign they're telling you the truth. If they do not, you should ask them to confirm again what value they see in your solution or ask them what potential hurdles might be standing in the way of them investing in such a solution. A good example of using this technique as a test close is by confirming back dates or numbers incorrectly. If a prospect tells you they need a solution in place by the 1st of September, confirm this back to them later in the conversation as the 1st of October. If they say they need 20 users or licenses, confirm it back as 30. 
The ideal outcome of making these purposeful mistakes is that you take the prospect from a mindset of considering your solution to wanting it. Because if you can take a prospect from requesting a quote for 20 licenses to correcting you by saying they want 20 licenses, it's a powerful psychological effect. Another excellent example is to make a purposeful mistake in your official proposal for a client. I again discovered this one by making an accidental mistake once or twice and having to call the prospect back to apologize. Making an error in a proposal gives you a great reason to call your prospect back before the agreed date and again has a powerful psychological effect that often creates more urgency in getting the contract signed. An example error could be something like an added feature or number of licenses included or even the price. There are some rules you should apply when doing this to protect yourself and of course to avoid being unfair to your prospects. Number one, you should ensure you can honor the mistake you make. And number two, you should ensure your proposal is valid for a limited period of time. Personally, I only ever use this technique on prospects who were quite obviously not being honest and upfront with me or ones that were playing me off against the competition. By calling and apologizing for the mistake, you'll often come across prospects who will point out that your proposal is legally binding. And this is where you confirm they're correct and remind them that the proposal is only valid for a specific number of days. And if this does not create urgency, nothing will. Following up. Following up is another one of those topics where no magic answer works for everyone. To make it even more complicated, knowing when to follow up with a prospect isn't even something you can work out based on mathematics either. You should decide on when to follow up with your prospect based on the answers to the following three questions. A. How far into the sales cycle are you? B. How qualified is the prospect? And C. Are there any competitors involved? For example, if you work with an average sales cycle of 30 days and you have an opportunity that has been open for 20 days, you should look at how far in the sales process you have come. If you've only had one call with the prospect and have not yet reached the presentation stage or sent out a proposal, it's probably a good sign that you need to follow up today. I always recommend looking at the age of your sales opportunities when reviewing your sales pipelines. I used to teach my team members to ask themselves if there was a good reason for why certain opportunities had exceeded the average time it usually took to progress a sale. I taught them that if they could not come up with a good reason for themselves, to get on the phone and to ask the prospect. You'll also find that you'll need to shorten the frequency of your follow-ups when your competition is involved, because you can be damn sure your competitor will be doing the same. You'll find that prospects who are speaking to multiple vendors make decisions faster for two reasons. One, if your prospect has taken the time to find your competitors, they've taken the time to research your solutions too. A well-educated prospect will often always make a faster decision. You can try to get confirmation of this fact by asking your prospect about how long they've been looking for a solution. And two, if two or more salespeople are chasing the same opportunity, you can be sure your prospect will want to get the sales process over and done with as soon as possible.
shopping around for the best price or product can be a draining and time-consuming process. And the more salespeople involved, the more follow-up calls the prospect is going to be receiving. There's a delicate balance between being a pushy salesperson who loses the opportunity by calling too often and being one who loses the sale by being too nice. The better you qualify your prospect and the more consistent you become in uncovering the decision-making processes, the easier it will be to decide when to follow up. The buying zone. Timing is everything in sales. You can call a prospect one week and they will put the phone down on you and you can call them the next and you'll close a sale. One of the reasons for this is that situations change. Maybe your prospect did not need your solution last week, but this week they read an article or saw an event that convinced them they did. If you've worked in sales for any length of time, I'm sure you or someone in your team have made a sale to a prospect that one of your colleagues have been calling for months without success. More often than not, this comes down to the timing rather than the ability of the salesperson. You'll also come across prospects who sound red hot when you first speak to them and cold as ice or impossible to reach the next. The buying zone is a term I use to describe a period in which your prospects are in a psychological state of mind where they're ready to invest in your solution. But this zone does not last forever. It can last for days, hours, or even just a matter of minutes. If you sell low-priced solutions, it's likely that your prospect can make a decision the same day. But if you fail to capitalize on this and take too long to follow up, they will either buy from your competitor or decide not to buy at all. To give you an example, I walked into a sports store a couple of months back to buy a new pair of football boots. I knew what make, model and size I wanted because I'd seen them on the internet, but I wanted to ensure the fit was comfortable. The service I received was so slow that I walked out without the boots and ended up buying a completely different pair from another store a few weeks later. I can also remember times in the past where I ended up not buying anything at all due to the salesperson being poor at the job. It's happened multiple times. I've sold multiple solutions to thousands of companies around the world and can tell you from experience that if you give your prospects too much breathing room, they will always convince themselves why they should not invest in your solution. When you reach the point in the sales process where your prospect is in the buying zone, you must complete the transaction before that time zone expires. You can discover if your prospect is in the buying zone by asking how they heard about you, listening for early buying signals, and asking how long they've been looking for a solution. Prospects in the buying zone will often try and rush you through the sales process, send you lots of buying signals, and will often come from specific sources such as customer referrals or paid marketing. I will again stress to you though, the importance of never letting a prospect rush you through the sales process. But I will also warn you that prospects in the buying zone are like an endangered species. When they're gone, they're gone. Contact roles. One of the most expensive mistakes you can make in sales is not to involve the key decision makers until the end of the sales process. If you take a contact with little influence in the final decision all the way through the sales process, you end up relying on them to sell your solution for you internally. 
To avoid this mistake, you must do three things. One, always collect or ask for the job title of your contact. Two, always ask your contact who else is involved in the decision. Three, get those people involved in the sales process before delivering your final presentation. There are typically five common roles that your contact will play. However, this will depend on the size and complexity of the company where they work. The first one is the information collector. The information collector typically plays a minimal role in the final decision. They're often assistants, juniors or inexperienced employees who've been given a task by an influencer or decision maker to collect information about a particular solution and compile a list of suppliers along with their features and pricing. The information collector can and will cost you a lot of lost sales if you fail to identify them early in the sales process. It's at this stage you should use them to collect intel on the company, project and most importantly on the other people involved in the final decision. You must also handle them with care in order to not make them feel like you're pushing them out of the way. Because although they may not control the decision much, they can influence what suppliers end up on the final list for consideration. An information collector is usually easy to spot. They will often have all of their questions ready to ask and will typically not be able to answer the more detailed qualifying questions. By asking why they're looking for such a solution or digging into the impact questions, you'll expose their lack of understanding and knowledge of the project. Using tools such as LinkedIn to check out the profile, job description and length of time at the company is also an effective way of evaluating how much influence they have in the decision. The second contact type is the internal influencer. Also known as the inside or internal champion, the internal influencer is the most common contact you'll deal with, especially if you work in business to business sales. The internal influencer does not always play a big part in the final decision, but they can play a vital role in helping you win the sale. An internal influencer is often a trusted employee, such as a manager or department head, but they can also be employees who are not in the management role, such as a person with knowledge of working with a solution like what you're offering. The internal influencer will more often than not be able to answer most, if not all, of your qualifying questions. They will have more of a detailed insight into the project and the company's goals, giving you the advantage of qualifying the opportunity thoroughly. Just as with the information collector, you must be careful not to make the internal influencer feel offended when you try to bring in decision makers into the sales process. Unlike the information collector, the influencer can influence the final decision a lot, even if they don't have the last word. The next contact type is the external influencer. An external influencer is someone who represents your prospect but is not an employee of the company. The most common examples you'll come across will be agencies and consultants. A large company may outsource purchases to an external influencer to save time and cut costs, whereas a small to medium-sized business may do it due to lack of resources. The number of businesses outsourcing work to external influencers has been on the rise for many years now, so it's important you learn how to work with this kind of contact and use them to your advantage. If you come across a prospect who works through an agency or a consultant, it's essential that you gain an understanding of the role they play. 
It's also important to build a healthy relationship with them as they can often also introduce you to their other prospects. Just like the internal employee, the external influencer is often a trusted advisor. They might be paid to test products or conduct market research on suppliers of services. They could be a long-term supplier or could be hired because of their expertise in a specific field. Either way, if they're paid to do a job, they must be trusted and respected by the company hiring them. It would be wrong to assume that every agency or consultant is an influencer because some are nothing more than information collectors. You'll find that agencies or consultants who are paid to conduct research will be more than happy to pass on the details of the decision makers once they have done their work, whereas others may rely on a commission once the purchase is complete. External influencers can either feel like a brilliant help or a complete roadblock. There have been times where I've made the right choice in cutting out the middleman and others where it's been a big mistake. The recommendation from my experience is to get to know exactly how the external influencer works. You need to know if the client pays them on a monthly retainer or if they get paid on a project by project basis. I also found that if you have or can create a reseller or a partnership program that incentivizes the external influencer when the prospect chooses your solution, it can help quite a lot. The next contact role is someone who is part of the decision-making team. The contacts who are part of the decision-making team are those who can play a significant role in the decision but can't give the final yes. In an ideal situation, you'll get to present your solution to everyone involved in the decision-making process, but this is rarely the case. Some decision-makers are control freaks who often become bottlenecks, whereas others trust their people more and do nothing but sign off on purchases over a certain limit. You should always treat every member of the decision-making team the same as you would treat the final decision-maker, because they can often sign the paperwork without further approval. And the fifth and final contact role is, of course, the final decision maker. The final decision maker could be company CEO, managing director, financial director, or it could even be a board of directors who meet once a quarter to make a batch of decisions. As I mentioned earlier, the final decision maker may not know anything about the solution and may not look at anything other than the investment needed. You'll find decision makers inside of larger organizations have less interest in the details than those within smaller businesses. This is why it's important to uncover the decision processes and stakeholders as early as possible in your conversations. If you discover that the final decision maker will review the purchase at some level of detail, then you need to make sure they attend the final presentation to influence them as much as possible. The better you become at asking about and uncovering the roles of your contact, the more transparent the sales process will become to you and the more you will learn about how organizations work. ATD. When I used to work as a sales leader, my team members would know what to do when I respond to their questions or complaints by yelling the letters ATD back at them. They knew that somewhere they had missed an important piece of information that gave the answer or response to their question because they knew that ATD stood for attention to detail. Sales is a high pressure and fast paced profession. 
You're often running from meeting to meeting, responding to emails on the fly, and trying to rush through your call list to keep up with your workload and achieve your target. But when you rush, you can make mistakes and can miss the important detail that can cost a sale. Here's a few real examples of scenarios where I or my team members failed to pay attention to detail resulting in varying consequences ranging from wasted time to lost sales. First one, I used to come into the office at 4am in the morning to call Australia from Europe earlier in my career and I remember one week I found it absolutely impossible to reach people all week, only to find out that the time zones had changed in Australia the previous week meaning everyone had already left for the day. Next one, I remember one of my sales team members was frustrated at the end of the month because she could not get a hold of their team's best opportunity. I reviewed the notes on the account and could see the contact person was on vacation for three weeks. Third one, I once lost a sales opportunity because the prospect surprised me at the last minute by going with the competitor. I later noticed I had made a note after my first call with that prospect and they told me that they'd been speaking with multiple suppliers, but I had forgotten. Next, I once had a team member needing to close just one final sale to hit her personal sales target and take us to team goal. She'd been trying to call and email the prospect all day without success and left the office feeling defeated. When I took five minutes to review the contact information, I realized the contact had a mobile number in his email signature. I called him, explained the situation, and we had the signed contract within the hour. These are just a few of the many simple mistakes you can make when you don't pay attention to detail. So next time you feel rushed or stressed and you're struggling with a certain situation, just whisper the letters ATD to yourself and think about what piece of information you could have missed that might have caused the problem. Objection Handling Throughout the sales process, you'll have to handle a variety of objections from your prospects. They'll tell you they're not interested, they're happy with what they have, your pricing is too high, your solution does not meet their standards, and so on. I find that most salespeople are poorly prepared for handling objections. They react defensively, drop their price, and go on an offensive pitch of features before they understand the objection. The most important thing to understand is that an objection is not a rejection. When a prospect objects, it's usually nothing more than a request for further information or clarification on something. But it can also just be because your timing is off. I love handling objections, and with the right understanding and strategy, you can too. But to do so, you must first have the following three components in your sales toolbox. First. You must have good product and industry knowledge. You need to be sharp when it comes to your product knowledge because although you don't use features to sell, you still need to know what features can help a client solve a problem or reach a goal. And when it comes to industry knowledge, you, of course, need to know the key strengths and weaknesses of your competitors and also understand how the industry works so you can come across as a knowledgeable expert. Number two, good questioning techniques. You need good questioning techniques because questions buy you time and help you get to the root cause of what your prospects are telling you and can also help you go directly from handling the objection to closing the sale. And number three, confidence. You must feel confident in yourself to handle objections effectively. 
A solid knowledge of your solution and industry, combined with your good questioning ability, will go a long way to giving you the confidence needed. But experience is also vital. Luckily, you don't need to be a 15-year veteran in sales or objection handling to be confident at something, but you do need to have done it over and over and over again. Practice makes perfect. Many salespeople mentally give up when they hear the first objection, but as soon as you realize that objections are a sign that your prospect is interested in your solution, the better you'll become at handling them. An objection can be a sign of your prospect's rationalizing their decisions with logical thinking, which means you're entering the final stages of the sales process. So it's important to stay calm, slow down if needed, and smoothly guide your prospect to sign on the dotted line. The three types of objections. I've discovered over time that objections come in three forms. Smoke screens, real objections, and brick walls. The smokescreen is by far the most common objection you'll come across. It's a false objection used to disguise the real one. An example of a smokescreen is when a prospect says your solution costs too much or when they tell you they're not interested. The best way to quickly judge if you're dealing with a smokescreen is to ask yourself if there's a reason behind the objection. For example, the reason behind a prospect saying your solution costs too much could be that they don't have the budget. It could also be that they don't see the value. The same goes for when a prospect tells you they're not interested. There could be a huge number of reasons behind this objection, ranging from them having had a bad day to having recently purchased another solution. You just don't know. When you fail to spot a smokescreen, you end up wasting a lot of time and energy trying to overcome the wrong objection without coming any closer to making the sale. Another classic example of a potential smokescreen is when a seemingly hot prospect starts nitpicking at the small details of your solution, such as the features and functionality. You may find that despite your suggested workarounds, the prospect just claims it's not sufficient and walks away from the deal. In reality, there was probably another reason for why they did not go ahead with your solution. The most significant objections you must overcome are the real ones. Thankfully, there are a small number of real objections compared to smoke screens. So, unless you offer a weak solution, you should be able to master overcoming all of them in a short space of time. When handling objections, it's important to pay particular attention to your prospect's tone. If they move fast and aggressive, you do the same. If they move slow and cautious, you move slow and cautious, remembering to speed up again when you've overcome the objection. Objections can relate to time, cost, service, features, and many other areas of your solution, which is why you need to master how to handle them accordingly, and why your product and market knowledge needs to be sharp. You'll also come across objections you cannot overcome. These are what I refer to as brick walls. An example of a brick wall objection would be if you worked in real estate and had a prospect who wanted to buy a house, but had no money and could not get credit from the bank. There would be very little you could do about this situation, and the likely outcome would be that the sale wouldn't happen. The best salespeople will always try to find workarounds to make a deal happen. However, it's important not to frustrate yourself with brick wall objections 
by trying too hard. You can try to find your way over, under or around a brick wall objection, but do not waste your time and energy trying to break through it unless it's worth a substantial amount. If you come across a brick wall objection at the end of the sales process, it's very likely you failed to qualify your prospect efficiently. So rather than getting frustrated with your prospects, learn from your lesson and move on. I witnessed a classic example of this a few months back when role-playing with a team of experienced salespeople for one of my clients. I knew the client offered a software solution that didn't work on Mac computers without having to install a Windows operating system. Now for some companies, this workaround is no problem, but for most, it's a complete brick wall. Not one of the salespeople asked me about what computers my company worked with as part of their qualifying questions, and as a result, I hit them with the objection after 15 to 20 wasted minutes of the call, and there wasn't any reason to continue. I strongly recommend you write down as many of the common brick walls you know about that can kill a potential sale and ensure you're raising these potential objections as part of your early qualifying questions with any new prospects. It can save you a lot of wasted time and frustration. The six step objection handling strategy. When prospects raise objections, it either means they're interested in buying or they're not interested in buying. Your job is to figure out which one quickly. Most salespeople have no strategy for handling objections. They panic, drop their price, get defensive, spit features and lose the sale. I handled thousands of objections during my sales career and developed a natural instinct for separating the real ones from the smoke screens. This is mainly due to the masterful strategy I picked up very early in my career from the book How to Master the Art of Selling by Tom Hopkins. There are six fundamental steps to this objection handling strategy and if you master them, you'll have the answer for every single objection your prospects throw at you, whether it relates to budget, features or competitors. The first step is to listen to and digest the objection. A reactive response will get you in trouble. You must pay attention to the speed, tone and words coming from the mouth of your prospect and then be comfortable taking a moment to digest what was said and plan your response. If a prospect tells you they're interested in your solution but comments that it's rather expensive, your natural reaction may be to assume that price is then the issue. You may be tempted to ask your prospect for their budget or start discount hinting at this point. But this approach will put your prospect in complete control. If you listen carefully and digest what was said, you'll be surprised at how quickly you can pick up on certain signals telling you that price isn't the issue. Next, you must use the closed-ended questioning technique and repeat back or paraphrase what your prospect said. The purpose is to demonstrate excellent listening skills and give your prospect a chance to elaborate on the objection. You'll again need to apply a few moments of silence after repeating back the objection, especially if it doesn't make much sense. You'll also have to handle long-winded objections from some prospects. I highly recommend using the option to paraphrase rather than repeating in these cases. A prospect may tell you 
They've reviewed the contract terms, sat down with colleagues to discuss, and can't justify the investment in your solution at this moment in time. When you master how to listen, digest, and paraphrase, your response may be to say something like, so you're saying you can't justify the investment due to the contract terms. What you've done here is taken a step towards isolating the exact objection. It's highly unlikely a prospect would spend time reviewing contract terms before they decide if they can justify the investment. So if you get a yes response to your closed-ended question, you can then move on to step three. Once you've isolated the concern, you need to dig deeper by asking open-ended questions in step three. For example, my natural response to the objection I just used would be to ask, what part of the contract terms are you concerned about? If the prospect responded saying they are concerned with the upfront payment, you could then respond by asking, would it help if I split the initial investment into two payments? You must never try to handle an objection before you know the exact details. You may need to go back and forth with open and closed-ended questions before you move on in order to avoid wasting time trying to overcome smoke screens or brick walls. Step four, once you have a positive response to your open-ended question and you know you're handling a valid objection, you must now provide an answer to the objection. Your answer may be to explain that you'll need to get approval from your finance department on the new payment terms, or if the objection relates to another concern, you may need to explain how something works or how you handle a particular scenario. The two most common mistakes salespeople make at this point is providing detailed and boring answers and assuming they've overcome the objection if the prospect seems happy. Step 5. You must confirm your prospect is happy with your answer by using the heat check technique. A heat check is a simple open-ended question which gets your prospect to confirm they accept your answer. You should avoid using heat checks such as, does that sound okay, because okay may not be enough to overcome the objection. You must get solid confirmation that your answer is accepted. I recommend using heat checks such as, will that work for you, does that erase your concern, or is that a workable solution? Depending on the nature of the objection, you may be able to use a test close and get the prospect to accept your answer and give you a commitment at the same time. For example, when your prospect says upfront payment is an issue and you confirm you can check with finance to get installments approved, this gives you the perfect opportunity to try asking, if I can get these new payment terms accepted, are you happy to go ahead? Alternatively, you could be a little less direct and ask the question such as, Apart from the payment terms, was there anything else you had any concerns about? Once you have a positive response from your heat check, you must move on and talk about the next step swiftly, which is step six. You may find that using deflection tactics make the transition away from talking about an objection much easier. Changing the topic by asking your prospect if they've looked over or thought about something else such as their preferred start date tariff or payment method is usually an efficient strategy. Dancing around the objection to try and reassure your prospect of the answer can also have the reverse effect. You risk raising suspicion that you're hiding something, so provide your answer, get acceptance and move on. With these six simple steps, 
you can isolate and handle pretty much any objection your prospect comes up with and take them quickly into the closing stages of the sales process, but you must be aware of the serial objector. Regardless of how effective you become at handling objections, you'll always meet prospects who have a new objection for every one you overcome. It can be easy to get frustrated when dealing with these serial objectors, especially if you feel like you're close to concluding the sale. But beware, serial objectors always find a new objection no matter how well you handle their last one, and this is because they may have no intention of buying. By mastering objection handling skills, you'll find it easier to filter out these time wasters, but until you do, be on high alert for prospects who raise more than two objections at once. If your gut tells you that you're dealing with a serial objector, don't be afraid to take the direct approach and say, I sense you're not entirely happy with our solution at the moment, and if that's the case, then please just let me know, and we can maybe discuss it again at another time in the future. In my experience, this approach will provoke a defensive reaction from prospects who have no intention of buying your solution and will extract the real objection from real prospects. In the following pages, I'll provide you with some word-for-word -word responses to some of the most common objections you'll face. But you'll need to do more than simply read this book to become great at handling objections. I highly recommend you practice objection handling in real time as much as possible, either by role plays or live calls. Theory will not condition your instinct to respond to live objections, but action will. How to handle price objections. It pays to prepare well for objections around the price of your solution. These objections can come in a variety of forms at any time in the conversation with your prospect. If you handle them well, you may win the sale. If you handle them poorly, you lose money either by losing the sale or by winning it at a heavily discounted rate. The following suggestions will give you a solid foundation of how to cope with each one. It's too expensive. It's pointless expressing your personal opinion about why your solution isn't expensive. Your prospect doesn't care about your opinion. Repeat back and paraphrase the objection by saying, so you think the solution costs too much? And when your prospect confirms, you may be tempted to ask something like, compared to what? But you must remember to isolate the objection before handling it. So instead, try asking, when you say that you think it costs too much, is this because you don't have the budget or because you don't see the value in our solution? If you've done a poor sales job, the prospect may confirm they don't see the value. Otherwise, they'll confirm they do not have the budget. If budget is the issue, you should move right into answering the objection by offering a solution such as extended payment terms or a delayed start date before confirming the terms on offer, heat checking if they are accepted, and talking about next steps. The payment terms solution, of course, only works when you have payment terms as an option. If not, you'll most likely have some different options available. Knowing what options to play and when to use them is key to your objection handling success. We don't have the budget. Your prospect may come right out and just say that they don't have the budget from the start. I find this to be one of the most common objections that salespeople struggle to handle. 
but it typically means your prospect either doesn't have the budget at all or doesn't have the budget right now. So you should ask the following question. When you say you don't have the budget, do you mean that you don't have the budget at all or just right now? In the event your prospect says they don't have the budget at all, you could be dealing with a brick wall or you may just need to work more on selling the value of your solution. Many prospects will say they do not have the budget if they're uncomfortable with the size of the investment, especially if your solution is new to them. The most common response will be that your prospect confirms they don't have the budget right now. Now this objection can very often be valid, so it's important not to press your prospect to the point of no return as you may only be dealing with a temporary brick wall. Before you begin brainstorming ways to get around this objection, ask your prospects more about how and when their budgets get allocated. You may discover potential solutions such as split payments or ways to dip in the budget of another department. Listing your options such as installments, lower deposits or delayed first payments is a good way to prepare yourself for handling objections about pricing. It will also steer you clear from offering discounts too early which may be your prospect's objective. We're happy with what we've got. It's common for a prospect to tell you they're happy with what they've got. They could be referring to an existing software, an agency, or a certain process they have in place. This objection is commonly used very early in the dialogue to try and get rid of you. It's essential that you don't get into objection handling mode so early in a conversation. Instead, work on parking the objection and respond positively saying something like, that's great to hear, what solution do you have in place at the moment? and then continue with your planned qualifying questions. You may not always get away with parking the objections, so here is a word-for-word -word strategy I used a while back when someone said they were happy with their current provider. The prospect said to me, thanks for the call, but we're happy with our current provider. To which I responded, so your current provider meets all of your present needs then? And the prospect just said, yes, thank you. And just before I let her go, I just said, can I just quickly ask, what do you like best about them? The prospect, after a short moment of silence, said to me, we have a long-standing relationship with them, so they know our business very well. To which I responded, so it sounds like knowing your business is a crucial advantage for any provider then. The prospect immediately said, yes, absolutely. Now at this point in the conversation, it was clear the prospect was happy with their current provider, but this didn't mean they weren't open to better options, so I decided to have a nothing-to-lose attempt. And I said, if I told you that I'd spent the past 10 years working with clients from your industry and combine that with my unique benefit in this situation of being able to bring a fresh approach, would that sway you to take a little more time to consider what we offer? The prospect turned out to be too comfortable to pull away from the competition in the end, but I did manage to overcome their objection and persuade her to give me the opportunity to present my solution, which was my objection. My approach may seem a little direct, but with tough objections like this one, you'll sometimes need to really sell yourself and express an extreme level of confidence to get a chance. So long as you remain humble at the same time, you've nothing to lose and everything to gain. When and how to discuss pricing. When and how to approach the topic of pricing with your prospect varies depending upon the length of your sales cycles. 
If you work with cycles of less than 30 days, it's likely you'll discuss pricing in detail in your first or second dialogue. If you work in cycles that are longer than 30 days, you should avoid discussing pricing in detail until the second or third conversation. Regardless of when you plan to discuss pricing, your prospect will almost always ask about it before you're ready. When this happens, you must remember to use the price range strategy I mentioned earlier in the book to avoid discussing in further detail. Above all, there are three things you must do before discussing pricing in any detail with your prospect. You must know exactly what your prospect needs by qualifying them. You must present your value presentation and communicate the values. And you must convince yourself your solution can offer the prospect substantial value. If you fail to qualify your prospect thoroughly before discussing pricing, you leave yourself open to objections. Depending on how complex your solution is, you may also risk overloading your prospect with so many choices they can't make a decision. There are studies which prove that if you present someone with too many options, they're likely to either select the choice which is most comfortable or to avoid making a decision at all. Think about that. If you're trying to pull your prospect away from a competitor towards a new way of working or maybe even to your highest price solution, what's the most comfortable decision they could make in those situations? It's definitely not switching suppliers, trying something new or selecting the most expensive option. So be careful. If you sell a solution with too many options to choose from, you must add more qualifying questions to your list to make sure you're crystal clear on exactly which solution your prospect needs when it comes to discussing pricing. It's your job to choose and your prospect's job to decide. By investing more time in qualifying your prospect, you won't only know what value to focus on during your presentation, but you'll hopefully also be able to narrow your offer down to one or two choices when you discuss the final investment required. You should also remember to use the term investment rather than cost or price of your solution because the money is just a small part of the overall investment. When presenting your recommended solution, it's important to mention all of the unique and valuable services included, such as free training and upgrades, a personal account manager, onboarding, support, etc. These things may be crucial to your prospect, but more importantly, they make your package seem a lot more comprehensive, which takes the edge off the financial investment that comes at the end. So in a nutshell, you must prepare the following process. One, know what solution you're going to offer to your prospect. Two, tell your prospect what solution they need, do not ask. And number three, list every valuable extra included in the package. Number four, tell your prospect the financial investment required. And number five, ask them how that sounds by heat checking. And number six, shut up and remain silent until you get a response. Remember that the heat check followed by the silence is crucial at this part of the sales process. Whoever talks first, loses. This is your only chance to get an honest response on how your prospect really feels about the required investment. So pay acute attention to every detail in their response and remember that the same words can mean opposite things when said in a different tone. Coffee, no sugar please.
Rather than enjoying the moment of silence after you ask your prospect for their thoughts on the investment, you may feel the urge to throw in a little sweetener to try and ensure they respond positively. But not everybody needs sugar in the coffee. You may feel the need to say something like, but we're flexible, or we might be able to offer a discount if you go ahead today. You may also say things like, it would usually cost, before telling your prospect the financials. By adding sweeteners, you're sending a message to your prospect that you're either desperate for the sale, insecure about the price, or both. The worst case scenario is that you do this to a prospect who is interested in buying, but they either become suspicious and walk away, or hustle you down to your rock bottom rate. If you have a habit of discount hinting too early in the sales process, your prospects will take advantage of you and your earnings potential will be limited. Not all prospects expect or ask for discounts. I guarantee that most don't have the cheek to even ask. But when they do ask, it's important to start closing if the timing is right. A prospect who asks, is that your best price, either has an objection or is ready to buy and is starting the negotiation process with you. Your job is to figure out which one. I always like to respond with a rebound question such as, what makes you ask? Because it puts the prospect on the spot and will often get you the truth. Alternatively, you could start asking some test close questions such as which package the prospect wants or what date they want to start. These questions will give you an instant sense of how serious the prospect is about going ahead. So just remember, next time you get that urge to drop in a little sweetener, it's an expensive mistake made by weak, insecure salespeople who are desperate for the sale.